Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? You know, I think we're all going into this one with, if I may use a word like this off the top, a little trepi- trepidation. Yeah. Trepidation? Yep. Yeah. Just like a, it's it's never comfortable. So yeah. I, uh, oof. I'm just not really sure where my brain is. And I went through 11 hours of documentary on this. And one was very last minute because I found it and went, oh, I should probably. And it's like, you don't need to. Well, I'm glad I did because it was my favorite. Oh. Because they found, we'll, we'll get into it. The point is, it's, this this week's been dark. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always like a little dark, but it's been dark. When it's dealing with children and to the point of I was watching um, because it was so last minute, my own children were home while I was sitting in a room watching a documentary on my laptop. And every once in a while I would shout something because something would really enrage me. And my husband would just go, no, no, guys, it's okay. She's just talking to her TV. And they both just like did like an, oh, okay, we get it. So that's kind of where I'm at is just like yelling at stuff, being enraged feeling like I could flip a table. Yeah. And so uh, this feels like the right place to be. 100%. Now, of course, we are talking about the Madeline McCann case in this episode of the show. Now, if you've listened to our show before, you'll know we get very uncomfortable talking about, of course, as Christy's alluding to, uh, cases involving children. But again... Uh, this was probably one of our most requested cases that people have been asking for. Jean-Benet Ramsey and Madeline McCann, I do believe, are the two most requested 
And I did start watching the Netflix documentary a few weeks ago, and I sent Christy a late night text that was like, I think we have to do it. (laughs) But the good news is, is that I'm being joined by an old friend tonight. That's right. Kimmy C. Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is here in my passenger seat, and I could not be happier about it. Uh, Keeping me warm. Just a nice warm hug. I'll also remind you, I think the last time I was in the Kim Crawford was one of the drunkest episodes we ever did <laughs> so there's also that yeah uh yeah. what you drinking over there well here's the thing i i don't have tiktok personally but sometimes when you just have that like few minutes to spare you just scroll through it right oh yeah and somebody somebody made this drink and i was and my first instinct was like ooh, if you put vodka in that that'd be nice so <laughs> Essentially, it's like varying levels of like Sprite, Mountain Dew, Blue Powerade, and then I added vodka. And then because I make two, I make one for the before and one for the after the mineral. And the first one, I add a little lime cordial. The second one, I added some grenadine. So we're going to see Christy's playing it up today. We're seeing... My dream is to make a cocktail. I want to make my own signature signature cocktail that's taken me weeks and several drunken episodes to get. I love that. I want to get it right. Now, what I also yeah. love is that what you've basically alluded to is that you've pre-made both cocktails, and then I'm assuming one yes. is in the fridge. Uh, both are sitting in frosty mugs right here because, believe it or not, the frosty mug keeps it the perfect temperature even over an hour and a half. Wow. Huh. So anybody at the Frosty Mug people, uh, I I will scream about your product. Yeah. Well, she if, has been. If there are, yeah, if, if there are Frosty Mug people, I mean, there have to be. But like, if you're looking for a spokesperson, it's like, oh, it keeps my buzz going. It keeps my buzz chill. Nope. No, I'm not meant to, to do this on the fly. The point is... It keeps it chill. Keeps it cool. It keeps me buzzed. It keeps it cool. Keeps me buzzed. I like that. I think that there's something in there. Listen. Yeah. Give us 20 minutes and, you know, you know, 20 shots and we'll figure out what the slogan is. Don't you worry. And now, very quickly, this episode is dropping on March 30th. Yes. Correct? Yes, it is. And March 30th is my dear mother's birthday. And so we wanted to say happy birthday, Laurel. Now, for those of you who are maybe new to us and don't know this, Laurel, uh, my mother, is the third in the Supernatural photos that we have posted before. I'm sure we will post them again to our Instagram at True Crime and Cocktails. The three of us went to a Supernatural convention in October 2019, back when that, you know, life was what it used to be. Anyway, and uh, the three of us, we just had a ball. We just had a time. And I look forward to the next time the three of us can do that together again. It was an absolute dream. And if it had to be the uh, the last time I could see you for an extended period of time, we did it right. We did. Yeah. We did. The photograph in question, there's there's one that's the three of us with the three main stars of Supernatural. And what's amazing is that it's three different women having three vastly different experiences Mm -hmm. my mother just beaming yes beaming hugging jensen ackles me not knowing where to put my hands 
I'm, I'm, I'm touching Misha Collins, but I don't know what to do with my hands. And then Christy just silent screaming with uh, Jared Padalecki's arms around her. Uh, again, we will post those photos again because I think that's the proper way to commemorate my mom's birthday. So happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday, Laurel. I am always up for anything that uh, celebrates Laurel and also reminds people that Jared Padalecki hugged me. And I just want to say... I, we got in there. You're only, you're only given so many seconds with them before they got to yeah. get out because they got to crank out those photos. Yeah. Uh, and so we got in there and I was just about to full panic attack. And he just went, you okay? And I went, no. And he just put his arms around me and pulled me in. And it was just like, and there. And then suddenly I was out of the room. I don't know how it happened. I was just It's a blur. Yeah. It yeah, it really is a was. blur. Yeah, uh, I think the other nice thing about this is this is a great way to test if she's still listening to every episode. Oh, that's a good call. I feel yeah. like she's going to be the first person to like the photo when we post it. Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, she also is pro- she is, I guess, if there's a if there's a contest. Yeah. Uh, Laurel is my favorite experience I've ever had with an aunt. When I, I'm going to say I was like mid-teens, maybe early teens, and we were visiting uh, in the summer and she was getting a cake for her sister's birthday. And for some reason I went with her, but you didn't. I assume you were probably at a day camp. You were very I involved. was at theater camp. See? There it is. Yeah. There yeah, it is. I was. You were always so involved. I was just very yeah. like, mm, I'm good. And we went to the grocery store and she got this cake. And as we're leaving, they have those doors where as soon as you walk up, the doors automatically open. It scared her and her reaction was to go, oh, and she moved her hands and the cake just like comically picked, like lifted in the air, turned upside down and landed. And we just sat there for a second and we're like, that's not real. And immediately she was just like, cashiers start coming over. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to need your manager. And she like talked them into a free cake. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Yeah. Because yeah. it was, yeah, yeah. I believe the exact quote was, what's your policy on customers who drop their cakes before they leave the store? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, I remember in the moment being horrified because we both have red hair. And even at that age, I was like, oh my God, people think we're related. We are related. But I'm like, they think she's my mother. And my mother has horrified me in front of all of these people. And so... I was horrified, but like to this day, I'm like, oh God, that was, that was classic Laurel. (laughs) Classic. Classic. Now I know that this is going to surprise you. Yeah. But I think we were a little bit younger and I think that was actually, it could have been the same. No, maybe the timing doesn't line up. I thought it was the same trip as what we're about to talk about. Cause it would have been August. It is possible. I think it might've been because I think I was about 10. It could have been, I did, well, I said early teen, I said, or like mid or early. So that would, I, yeah, I would have been like 11-ish maybe. Yeah. So it very well could be. Well, isn't that a beautiful segue? It's a beautiful segue. It's setting itself up. Yeah. Now, listen, obviously we're going to get into all of the details of the Madeline McCann case. And if you're not familiar, do not worry, because as always, we will get into the thick of it. So for those who don't know, uh, and those who do, obviously part of the detail of this case is that 
uh, Madeline's family was on vacation in Portugal and they left them and, and their friends. And again, we'll get into more of this later. Don't worry. But they every night would go to dinner and they would leave the children unattended in their hotel rooms while they went to dinner and they would go back periodically to check on them again put a pin in it because don't worry we'll spend a lot of time on the ins and outs of what that is but Mm -hmm. I texted Christy earlier this week and I was like you're not going to believe this but we kind of had that happen to us (laughs) except I don't remember anyone checking on us We were not checked on. No. So basically, Christy and your your family came to visit. It was the, again, it was the summer. This is why I think it could have been the same trip. But you had come from Saskatchewan all the way to Ontario, which is, yeah. I mean, you got to that's going to take a week basically you, to drive that distance, right? Like it was like several th- days. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, if you want to do, unless you're trying to do like you know, marathon drives every day, which is not at all enjoyable. But what that meant was your camper, you were, you were in a van, right? That was towing a, a pop-up camper essentially. Right. Yeah. I think we made it part of like, cause we, every summer that was our summer vacation was we're going to do two weeks. We camp at various different places. Sometimes we go down into the States, but wherever we go each night is like a, you camp somewhere. Um, sometimes we stay a couple nights, it depends. But I think we roped it into like a, we camped all the way there. We were at, we came to visit that side of the family. And then I think we went a different direction home to camp at right. other places on the way home. So what this meant was, is they had this pop-up trailer, which if you don't know what that is, we'll, again, we'll post a photo on at True Crime and Cocktails Instagram. But basically it kind of like pushes down so that when you're 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 pulling it, Uh, you know, for long distances. It's not a huge, huge thing. Uh, But then when you stop, it kind of like, I don't know how it goes. You pull a lever or something and it pops out into a a larger place with with sleeping areas in it. So this was parked in our shared grandparents' driveway. Yeah. And someone had the idea, wouldn't it be fun for the girls if they slept in that at nights? So much like in Christmas Vacation, when it was like, oh, the (laughs) kids... Oh, no, but that was the kids that they sent in the house. Yeah. And the adults slept in the trailer, I guess. Okay, so much like the children in this case, yeah, we we slept out in the trailer, which in retrospect now does feel slightly dangerous that we were, you know, children left in, in a <laughs> unattended in a in a, a pop trailer, which also would draw attention because it was never normally there. So it would be something that would draw the eye to yeah. potential uh, ne'er-do-wells that could have been in the area. That's true. Also, I'm fairly certain they were on the corner of at least one of those streets was fairly busy, right? It was. was like a apparently main street. Mm -hmm. One thing that I specifically remember about that camper, uh, I don't think we had any issues that night, but I distinctly remember over the years of using it, that the lock and that door, not trustworthy. (gasps) Like, I distinctly remember there was one time we'd gone to, I don't know, some campsite And I guess the ground must have been just like a little bit uneven. And so I woke up one morning. It was, I have no idea what time. It was early enough that there, like it was just light outside. And so I could see my, everybody in my family was asleep. Uh, And I woke up and our camper door was just wide open. Because it, overnight, it realized that like it just wasn't balanced properly. And it just unlocked and because all you do to lock is just like turn the tiniest little thing and it's like, well, that did nothing. And that 
there was no part of me that was terrified thinking, what if somebody had come into the camper and like saw we had nothing to steal and then just left and then didn't bother closing the door? That didn't cross my mind. Uh, I was just like, oof, that doesn't feel safe. But then I noticed a little tiny bee had flown in and landed on my sister and it was just like laying there sleeping or something. And it made me laugh so hard <laughs> that I was in tears. And when I think back to it, it's it just the water fills my eyes because I'm like, for some reason, it's not funny at all. But for some reason, that bee just sitting there was so funny to me. But my point is, those, this, it was, this, the doors were not secure. Oh, I vividly remember you going, okay, I'll lock the door for the night and going like, like it was like the tiniest thing and I was like that's it and you were like that's it and I was like okay like I guess this is safe now granted we were in our grandparents driveway so I guess that's safer than the case we're going to talk about where they were at a much greater distance from the children and the children were a lot younger but I don't know in retrospect I was like I don't know if that was the best idea but I guess I get I think the bigger thing was that because as we've alluded to on the show before there's an energy to us when we get together and there's a volume there's a volume issue for a lot of people. And I think they thought this is a great break for everyone is put put the two of them out in the driveway in the camper. And guess what? We <laughs> will all get a break. <laughs> we got we got shunned yeah. to the camper. How yeah. did I oh, not yeah. figure that out? I also want to point out to you, even if that door was solid steel and they couldn't get through it. Out, like where we were sitting was just a canvas that like snapped to a thing. So from the outside is how you unsnap. <laughs> so it, Oh, so you could literally just unsnap it and be have, in there. They could have easily gotten into us. Wow. Yeah. Now, I guess it's also important to remember that it was, you know, the early 90s. So yes, uh, arguably a, you know, slightly safer time. But let's just say it. It it's thank goodness that it has a happy ending, which is that we're both still here. My God. Yeah. Well, the other thing I remember from our time in that camper, two things. One, it was very hot. It was hot in there. Mm-hmm. Two, okay, three things. Two, we spent a lot of time in there. Like, I remember, yeah. like, we we loved being in that thing, you and I. And then three, we used to get cans of pop, and then we would open them, but just a tiny, tiny bit, like, not all the way. So you'd go, like, that much, and then you'd shake it, and you'd slurp the little tiny bits of bubbles that would come out. So one can of pop would last you like, oh, easily two hours. Cause you're just like, shake a, shake a, shake a, shake a, the like tiniest little bit at a time. Do you remember that? I don't, but the patience level that would take, that also is a hundred percent us to be like, yep. You know what? I got a bit. Do you want to do this? And then the other one to be like, <laughs> yes, please. Um, I also, I mean, the fact that we wanted to be in there, jokes on you, family. Maybe we yeah. wanted the break from you. Maybe you were shunned all along. I don't know what my problem is. Also, did they leave the front door open? What if we had had to pee in the night? There was yeah, no bathroom no in that No bathroom. Tent. Well, I don't, I don't know. I distinctly can re- remember being in, like, laying in the part right underneath, in the side right underneath, like a street light, and you could like unzip to see out the mesh because that's the other thing. You unzip from the inside and there's a mesh screen. You unzip from the outside and then it just lets the breeze through. So really, if someone just wants to 
unzip from the outside. It's like just a little thin canvas and a shitty little meshing to get to us. And we were right there. But I remember unzipping that so we could have like try and get air through because we were so hot. It was very stuffy. Yeah. I do think that grandma left the front door open so that we could get in overnight. I do think so. Yeah. But I think what you're really hitting home, which I think is the important thing to remember, is we basically were in a glorified tent in a bar, in a driveway that was adjacent to a very busy street. So again, we have guardian angels or something. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe there is like some sort of cosmic force that was like, you know what? Let them be safe. They're going to need fodder for a podcast someday. A hundred percent. It should also be noted about the pop drinking I'm speaking of. It wasn't one of those things where it was like we, like now, like where it's like you have a drink and you, you take a sip and you put it down and then periodically you come back to it. We sat with them in our hands and did this, this whole method until the cans were gone. And again, I'm telling you it was over an hour. I, I'm certain of it. But again, the commitment, the patience and the commitment, like you're saying, to just sit there, shake a, shake a, shake a, shake a, for that long. The next time we're together, can we relive that? We're going to have to. Because I need to see what it's like. (laughs) I need to be brought back. I want to do it and then immediately be like, there it is, and be taken back because I think there's like a sense memory to it. And my memory was that it was grape soda. Oh, classic kid. Yep. Yeah, that feels right. And we also were using that to make ice cream floats, I remember. We had orange ones and I think root beer and grape, I remember. That feels right. You are always the best one when it comes to very specific memories. I am to a point in my adulthood and then it all blurs. (laughs) (laughs) But childhood, yes, I remember a lot. I remember a lot. Oh, God, here we go. (laughs) Yep, yep. Oh, dear listeners, we're doing this for you. We're doing this because we love you. Mm-hmm. Just know that. And if you're new to us and you haven't listened to us before, welcome. We get awkward when we talk about child murder and abduction. So mm-hmm. buckle in. Yep. Buckle in. Mm-hmm. All right. We're talking, of course, about Madeline McCann, one of arguably the most famous and most tragic true crime cases Mm -hmm. of our generation. I think it is safe to say a brief synopsis for you as a refresher in case you're not up to date. In May 2007, three-year-old Madeline McCann vanished while on vacation with her family in Portugal. In the more than decades since, there have been no signs of Madeline in what has become the most heavily reported missing persons case in modern history. So what happened to Madeline McCann? Did she wander off on her own and get lost? Was she abducted in a burglary gone wrong? Or are Madeline's parents guilty of more than just child negligence? They're certainly guilty of that. Mm-hmm. But again, it should also be noted, and I know that we're going to get into this later, but what we've alluded to again, her her parents left a three-year-old and a pair of two-year-olds alone she, in a room. Yeah, they did. We were at least, you know, you know, 10, 11 years old, possibly a little bit older. The case that we're talking about happened in 2007 in Portugal. Is that where you'd like to start? <laughs> i'd like to like to start at the end and just be done with it it's just i mean this case is fascinating but 
she was a baby. I know. It's so hard. It's so hard. I also, uh, I do want to say, I know we don't say things like this normally. I just, I just want to give like a little like warning to anyone. There could be some triggering things that get said there. We're talking about a child. There's obviously a lot of theories that could be said, but there's going to be a lot of things that come up about like child abuse and oh god things like that <laughs> i thought i was gonna be a grown-up and be able to say and so my point is just like breathe it out and uh you're among friends yeah well yeah. listen and I, and you know it's it's such a it's it's such a tough thing but i always come back to the same thing we always talk about which is you know the hope is is that by continuing to talk about these cases and continuing to raise the awareness and looking at the facts that we have, you know, hopefully that will lead to some justice being found. So while it is very difficult, you know, we are in the very privileged position of being able to talk about it. And so maybe if we look at it that way, it'll feel easier. I like it a lot. Yeah. I also just like, just know that I'm probably going to get a little heated. I think I might too. And you know who else is going to? Kim Crawford. Crawford. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I like it. Yep. I like it. All All right. Let's just do it. Rip the Band-Aid. Let's go. It's going to get tough. It's going to get angry. Okay? Buckle in. You asked for this. The people asked for it. (laughs) They did. We're doing this for you. We're doing it for you, and we're goddamn happy to. Here we go. Yes. All right. Jerry McCann and Kate Healy were both born in 1968 but didn't meet until medical school in Glasgow in 1993. The pair went on to marry in 1998. Jerry is a cardiologist. Kate is a part-time GP, uh, although in North America, it's it's a doctor, general practitioner in the the UK. Uh, After fertility struggles, Kate went through IVF, and on May 12, 2003, Madeline Beth McCann was born. Kate and Jerry would go on to have twins, Sean and Emily, on March 16th, 2005. The family of five lived in Leicester, UK. Madeline was described as beautiful, bright, funny, adventurous, caring, just always singing and dancing. So, April 28th, 2007, the McCanns go on vacation to Portugal, staying in Praia de Luz, Uh, a village of approximately a thousand people, uh, which is known as Little Britain due to the heavy concentration of British homeowners and visitors. Joining the McCanns on their trip was David and Fiona Payne with their two children and Fiona's mom, Diane Webster, Jane Tanner and Russell O'Brien and their two kids, and Matthew and Rachel Oldfield and their child. Uh, Since this trip occurred, Jane and Russell have been married, I believe. Not that it matters if they were married or not at the time, but they have since, and it was a new fact, so there you go. Yeah. So on this trip, there's a total of nine adults and eight children. Most of these children are toddlers. Six of the adults were doctors, that being Kate and Jerry, Fiona and David, Russell and Matthew. So the group stay at the Ocean Club Resort in the fifth block of a group of apartments known as Waterside Village. The McCanns specifically stayed in apartment 5A, which was right on the corner with an access at the front of the building from one street and a back patio that led to a second street. 
The resort was very family friendly. Uh, it had a kids club and a babysitting service. Every evening, the adults would have dinner at the resort's tapas restaurant. It was approximately 180 feet from the apartments. They booked the table at the beginning of the trip for the entire week. The friends would later become known as the to the Port Portuguese police as the Tapas Seven. They devised their own what they call security system. So during dinner, someone would go back to the apartments and check on the sleeping children every like 15 to 20 minutes. Sometimes they would go just check on their own children. Sometimes they'd go check on, e on each other's children while they were doing it. The group did this for the full week while they were there. And just to point out, the resort had what they call a night crash, which is a babysitting service, but the friends chose not to use it as they didn't want to wake the children when dinner was over and then take them back. And they just didn't want to interrupt the children's sleep. But we'll get into the anger on that one momentarily. So on the morning of Thursday, May 3rd, 2007, Madeline asks Kate, why didn't you come to us when we were crying? Apparently, Madeline and Sean had gotten upset for some reason the night before, and from what I've read, cried for several hours without any parent noticing. Kate would later recall a large brown stain on Madeline's pajama top that she assumed was just tea that had been spilled, but she has no idea. Kate just never pressed for more info and just pushed the whole thing out of her mind. What I think is out of her mind is Kate for fucking thinking, okay, so my kid is like, I was crying the night before I was upset and you didn't come to me. And she was like, oh, it's cool. This system works. It's like, obviously your, your system doesn't work. I mean, later on, it came out that sometimes they would just peek in the windows at the kids to make sure things were fine. And like, they wouldn't actually officially go in and check on things. And they say every 15, 20 minutes, it wasn't always, sometimes it was half an hour. Sometimes it was longer. So I have a, just a very quick question and you may not know the answer to this, but you said there's mm -hmm. nine adults, but there was seven yes. of them at dinner every night. So that means there are a couple of spare adults, right? Well, they were all, well, they call them the top of seven because I don't think there are some that they don't think are involved. Mm. But I guess my point is, is that if, because you mentioned also that one of the couples, like their one of them brought their mom. So it's feasible. Yes. It's feasible that there is an adult that is there that they know that is part of their party who is not interested in going to these dinners who could, I don't know, be in one of the apartments with all of the children I understand eight kids is a lot, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just, I'm trying to troubleshoot yeah. already. Basically, I'm trying to poke holes already where it's like, why did it, if there was, yeah. if there was adults that you knew there and the kids yeah. were already asleep, why don't you put them all in one, one place and then you have an adult there on, on hand? As far as I know, all of the adults were at dinner. I don't know if they were at dinner every single night, but the day after when they were speaking to police, they like drew they wrote out like a timeline of what they remembered best and they drew a table and they drew where everybody was sitting and it had all of them including uh fiona's mother oh so is the tapas seven that dinner was at seven maybe i assume the tapas seven is referring to just the mechanic everybody but the mechanics i see i because see. i think i think their idea is like 
those seven are helping to cover things up is what the police are got thinking. it so i think they're just not including the mechanics i have a that. new way that i will also reword my point um if yes. they're there for a week why doesn't every parent just take one night off of dinner to watch the kids i'd agree to that system then there's at least somebody present Anyway, I'm sorry. I I I I, yeah. the, I know that there's so much to get through, and we, you know, obviously we got to get going. But I just the, the the hang up for me, and I'm sure it's the hang up for you, and I think it's a hang up for a lot of people, is that again, we we will just stress that Madeline was three, and the twins, mm-hmm. her siblings, were two. They yeah. left a three year old and two two year olds alone. I just can't yeah. wrap my head around it. I just can't. Like it's it's no. so. To me, it's just so egregious. It's, it's, I just can't imagine. And it's not a situation where it's like, you know, a single mom can't, her childcare cancels last minute. She has to go to work. She's, she, she panics in the moment. Like, this is a very affluent group of people who are on a very, very, you know, ritzy vacation. Again, it's, it's just very difficult to compute. I'm sorry. Keep that rage. (laughs) Especially when I tell you the timeline of what they did during the day. Oh, God. Okay, let's go. Okay, yep. so so brace yourself. Yep. The children spent the morning in the resort's kids club. Kate then picked them up and so that they could have lunch together at the apartment before heading to the pool. Kate took the last known photograph of Madeline at the pool at 2.29 that afternoon. It, I'll post it somewhere. It's a very lovely photo. Jerry is there with little Amelie and Madeline is there and she's just, she's glowing. She's just so happy. The children after lunch and a bit of time in the pool returned to the kids club. Kate then picked them up at six and took them back to the apartment while Jerry had a tennis lesson. The parents were going to get takeaway and eat on the balcony, but the kids were so exhausted that the parents decided, you know what? We'll just eat at the restaurant anyway. Yeah. I mean, like, the balcony isn't big enough that they all could have probably sat there. But at the same time, it's like, these are close friends of yours, close enough that you would probably see each other quite often. I'm sure some of them even work together because most of them are doctors. So maybe it's like, maybe each night you, like, break into groups, like, split in half and do, like, dinner at the balcony so that, you can be there because again if you've somehow even heard your child crying and they're almost 200 feet away it's gonna take you a while to get there absolutely it's not like they're within an arm's reach or you can't just like get up and be it to them within like these also aren't like again these aren't like 12 13 year old kids these are babies these are these are toddlers like I just can't, yeah. I don't know. It's, 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 it, I feel like I'm hitting my head against a wall every time I think about it because it's so yeah. unimaginable to me. I, I, mean, I don't even know. They, they had, they chose the specific spot and the, the table that they did at the restaurant because they said it has the line of sight right to the building. I've already jumped ahead in my notes. It has a line of sight, but you can't see the door. There is a wall and then there's like a big tree or shrub or something. So you can't actually see the door of the apartment. You can see the top of the apartment, but you can't see if somebody's coming or going. But even if you could, you're sitting there and you look and you see somebody coming out of your apartment. There is no way you're going to get there by the time that they haven't just like gotten in a vehicle and they're gone. Yeah. 
you know? So we'll we'll continue to get passionate. Quick, quick clarification. When you talk about them being yes. at the kids club, that means that they've dropped the kids off. It's like a like a daycare. Mm-hmm. Got it. So a day, it's it's a daycare, but they do like they have things like specific activities that the kids do as opposed to just like the night daycare where the kids are just supposed to be, I assume, sleeping. Right. But I guess my point being, because I thought maybe they didn't feel comfortable leaving their children with someone else, with a stranger. But what you're telling me is that they left a three-year-old and two toddler, two two-year-olds all day, essentially that day. We don't know if they did it every day, but we know that that day they left them basically in two different chunks with yep. strangers. So the idea that yep. then they wouldn't just hire a one of these babysitters who would probably be one of the daycare workers, essentially, with the kids club workers, would probably be the same staff, I'm guessing, to come and sit in your room for two hours, three hours. That's, I, okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. It will just continue to get worse. The kids are just so exhausted. Kate said that Madeline couldn't even keep her eyes open. So Madeline and the twins go to bed around 7 p.m. Madeline is in a pink and white Eeyore pajamas uh, with her favorite toy, Cuddle Cat. Kate noted that Madeline just seemed even more tired than usual. She assumed it was just because she'd had a really long day. And plus, this was nearing the end of their vacation. They'd already been there for like five days and in that sun and the kids probably more active throughout the day than usual. So yeah, by this point, she's tired. So 8.30... Kate and Jerry meet up with their friends at the Tapas restaurant. The parents said they chose this table because it had a line of sight right to the apartment, which wasn't exactly accurate. Also, when the friends pre-booked the table earlier in the week, the restaurant made a note in the reservation book stating that the group required that table so that they could check on their children who would be sleeping in the apartment. That reservation book is left on, like, a podium for anybody to see. Oh, and just so you know, when they write your name down, they also write what apartment you're in. Right. Yep. And that note was there for every day. So like anybody could walk by and see that. Also, anybody who just happens upon it at night could just sit and watch them. And if they're every like half hour or so, you would know the timing enough to see once one of them has gone back, you've got about 20, 30 minutes. But again, we'll get into that rage. Yep. One thing also to note, the patio doors of the apartment could only be locked from the inside. So while the doors were closed, they were left unlocked so that the parents could get in and out of each other's apartments to check on the children more easily. Yep. Uh, Jerry McCann made the first check of the children at 9.05 p.m., He would later note that he left the children's bedroom door slightly ajar, but he found it almost wide open. He pulled it nearly closed and returned to the restaurant. 9.30. Kate is going to be the one to go for the check. But then her friend Matthew Oldfield offers to do it for her because he's going to check on his own children as they are staying in apartment 5B right next door. Mm Mm-hmm. Matthew recalls the bedroom door being wide open. He peered inside. He sees the twins in their cot. He didn't look in far enough to actually see Madeline. Uh, Her bed would have been along the same wall as the bedroom door. So he would have had to like at least lean in the room to turn to look around the corner to see her in bed. 
But he didn't do that. He heard a noise that he just assumed sounded like a child rolling in their bed. His specific quote was, it sounded like one of the twins rolling over. And I would really love to know how does a two-year-old sound different rolling over than a three-year-old? You know, why specifically did it sound like one? Why did you assume a sound was the twins and not the other child? Yeah. You know, I just have questions about that. So he looks in, he sees the twins, closes the door, hears the noise, is like, oh, I'm sure they're just rolling over. He leaves. At 10 p.m., Kate does the check for apartment 5A. Kate enters the apartment through the unlocked patio door at the back. She noticed that the children's bedroom door was wide open. When she got to the door, it slammed shut as there was a breeze. She opened the door, realizing that the window and shutter were open. Madeline's blanket and cuddle cat were in the bed, but Madeline was gone. Kate did a brief, hurried search of the apartment and ran back to the restaurant, screaming that Madeline was gone. Leaving, so leaving the two two-year-olds. She sure did. I can't. Yep, yep. Oh, there's, there's a lot of rage. There's a lot of, this entire episode, consider as a mother. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken us this long for that to come out. Because it is, it, oh, I've been screaming it, watching all of these documentaries about it, because I'm just, I'm enraged. Yeah. It was, when you have a child, they're your responsibility. I'm going to I'm probably going to say this later, but I'm passionate about it. So it's coming out. Do now. It. I understand that when you have children, you can feel really overwhelmed and like you need a break and you just want to get away. And sure, they were like, you know what? Let's go have some fun. They've got a family thing. We can they can be at a babysitter. But maybe uh, if you don't plan on just like spending the entire time with your children or don't have a plan for them to be looked after by an adult, maybe just put a pin in that trip and go a little bit later or go at a point where you can leave the children with family members and go on this trip. I get that you want to go and have fun. Everybody deserves a good time. It seemed like the kids were having a great time and that's great. Never should have even entered their minds of like, yeah, we'll just, uh, we'll just leave them. It'll be fine. And yes, I'm well aware that there were eight children in this grouping and they all left their children for considerable times and came back. But I would also then like to say, I get that there's eight of them. And while only one was missing, I feel like one is too many. Oh yeah. So I feel like the risk would not be worth going on this trip and leaving your child, especially when there is a daycare system that they could have used. I get that it's a pain to go and pick the kid up from, you know, and bring it back and try and get them back to sleep and all of that. I but get I how also, that can be a pain in the I ass. I don't buy that there wasn't an in-room nanny that you could hire. At any resort that I've ever been to, it's always in the book of amenities if there's if children are allowed at the resort. It just is. And again, I always my perception was always that they just didn't feel comfortable with a with a stranger being in the room with the kids. That's why I thought they didn't do it. This whole other excuse is just, its it doesn't, I think, and I know that we'll get into all of it, it just seems fishy at the end of the day. Especially like, yeah. there's a lot of judgment calls here that it, it's wild to me. And I know that there was, in one of the documentaries I watched, there was a reference that it was like, oh, this was quite common culturally for the British people to do. 
I ask questions about that. I would ask questions about that. But then again, our, our grandmother was British and she put us out, out in, the, in the camper and left the front door of the house open. So who knows? Maybe, maybe this is more oh. prevalent. We have a lot of listeners in the UK. I'd love to know their take. I truly believe our grandmother didn't sleep a wink that night. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. That's, that's the other, like the other thing I get, again, I get it's a pain if you want to take your kids to the, like the, to the night crash that they had where you could go take them, they go sleep there, you pick them up. Wouldn't that make your dinner more enjoyable so someone's not getting up and leaving the table every 20 minutes, constantly watching a clock to go and when do we have to go make sure we're going to do a check? And then you can't tell me at some point someone wasn't like, I've had a little too much wine, I don't want to go, you go for me, all of that. It would just make it so much more enjoyable. I know that I would already be nervous having my child at a night babysitter that I don't know but I don't think I could ever just be like, I'll just leave them in the house. I'm sure it'll be fine. Like I, I have, uh, when my youngest was like a baby and would have his naps in the afternoon, there were times where it's like, okay, I've put him, he's in the, he's in his bed. He's going to have his nap. I have like a monitor so I can, you know, hear if there's a noise and I will go and do yard work and our house is locked. And I can see that. And even then I'm like, oh, I'm a terrible mother for not being in the room, like in the house, you know, while, and it's like, but you're fine. Like nobody's going to get, if anybody's going to get past you, you're going to see it. Yes. And it's also your own home. And the home. house is locked. And, and the house is yeah. locked. You're not in a foreign country leaving and I, a room yes. unlocked with it. Uh, anyway. Ugh. I also stayed in the yard. So it yes. was like, it wasn't a big deal, but I guess maybe I was looking for an excuse out of yard work, but I did it anyway. <laughs> Fair. 10 10 p.m jerry sends matt oldfield to the reception desk to call the police 10 30 the resort activates its missing child search protocol why'd that take 30 minutes or even the 20 minutes from as soon as they get to the door or the front desk and they're like hey we have a child that's missing that's when your protocol starts there's no phone in the rooms and there's no phone in the restaurant there's no phones the, the police have a lot of questions about that yeah. as well. Yeah. 60 staff and guests searched for Madeline until about 4.30 in the morning. At first, they all just kind of assumed she got up and was a little disoriented and probably wandered off on her own. Businesses even closed down so that everybody could just come out and start looking. So did she wander on her own? Uh, we will get into theories later, but I'm going to outright just say the front door of this apartment was locked. She would have had to use the patio door and being a three-year-old, she probably wasn't very tall. So she probably would have used like put her hands on the glass to move it while her fingerprints weren't found on the glass. Okay, let's say she opened the patio door and then went down the back patio, which means down a set of steps to a, there was a baby like safety gate. She would have had to open that and then she would go down some steps, go across and then open another gate. And then close it behind her because all of those gates were closed. Now, I know children, or I know mine specifically, and if they go through a door, they don't close it. They don't close it behind them. They don't know what they're doing. They're all born in a barn. Well, they leave it open, you know, like what kid would walk out of bed and be like, you know what, while I'm going, I'm going to close all these doors behind me. And like certainly if she's just woken up out of sleep. Right? Yeah. Like if she's, uh, and, and, well, now we also have to believe that 
Kate McCann is telling the truth. And uh, spoiler alert, I don't know that I believe anything she says. But if we're to believe that mm-hmm. her story that that Madeline and the twins cried for hours the night before, it doesn't sound like yeah. Madeline. I mean, I guess maybe if she did get cry for hours the night before, then maybe the next night it would escalate to her leaving the apartment looking for her mom. Maybe that's maybe that is true. But again, I don't know what as to believe. As, well, as far as I'm concerned, if I'm upset enough or just like I need a parent or I don't know what's going on and I'm getting up in the middle of the night, I'm taking my toy with me. Right. That would have been my go to thing is like if this thing's I'm inseparable with it, it's going to come with me. But, you know, again, these are more things that we're going to get real angry about yeah. at some point. Yep. yep. So 11.10 p.m., the local police, uh, known as the GNR, arrive. After a brief search, they called in the PJ. Now, oh, bless this. Policia Judiciaria? Nice. We're, we're just going to call them the, pretty close. The, the PJ. I'm really happy that I've got Praia Deluge. I've, I'm happy about that. So, you know, I take my wins where I can get them. So the PJ are essentially kind of like the FBI of Portugal, you know. So they come in, they get called at midnight. 2 a.m., two patrol dogs are brought in. And at 8 a.m., four search and rescue dogs finally come in. So while police are there, they're interviewing all the friends from the restaurant. Now, Jane Tanner mentions to the police that when she went to check on her own children around 9.15 p.m., she saw a man crossing the corner near the McCann's apartment carrying a child in light-colored pajamas. She described the man as a white male, approximately 5'7", dark hair, wearing beige trousers and a dark jacket. Her quote was, he just didn't look like a tourist. Jane then claims to have given police the information immediately. However, they didn't release any of this to the public until May 25th. A sketch of the suspect was distributed to the media. Although I'm not really sure why. Now... I I was going to print the sketch off. And then I was like, you know what? No, I'm just going to draw it myself. And I said that to my husband and he was like, you don't have time to do a sketch of somebody. <laughs> and then I showed him the sketch and he went, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you did it. And I was like, yeah, I did. So this is the first sketch. I will post it on uh, True Crime and Cocktails at, uh, on Instagram. But this is the first sketch that went out to the public. To try and find this man. Oh my God, he has no face. <laughs> it's, yep. just, it's just yep. a circle with bangs. It's 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 an egg with hair. Oh. Now, just just in case, just in case someone thinks I'm exaggerating, I then did print off the official sketch of of what they did. Oh release. my God, first, I did I did pretty well. First of all, kudos, <laughs> uh, Monet over there. Wow. <laughs> and second of all, yep. that is lunacy. Mm-hmm. That's a joke. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Even a later police chief was like, I don't know why that got actually released. I feel like it was their moment of like, this is all we can do. Right. And it's like, but this was literally nothing. Oh my God, the person has a head? <laughs> well, that narrows it down. Yeah, like, wow. Come on. Also, very quickly, Jane. Yes. Jane. Mm-hmm. So you see a man who doesn't look like he's a tourist wandering mm-hmm. around a hotel uh, carrying a child yeah. in pajamas. You didn't think to maybe say something? Hi, yeah. how are you? 
See if the person responds. I'm not saying you have to start by accusing, because I also understand that's a weird thing. But why not try to engage the person to kind of get a vibe to see if you need to call the police that a man has taken a child? Yeah. And wouldn't it be really cool if in this conversation you were having with him, you had a chance to see the child's face to know if you knew them or not? Yep. Um... Yeah, look, there's there's going to be a lot of things I'm going to get upset about. And don't forget about Jane and her no-sketch sketch, because we, uh, we're going to bring them back. Great. Weeks later, an Irish man named Martin Smith came forward to say that he was leaving the Dolphin Restaurant when he, with his family when he saw a man carrying a sleeping child at around 10 p.m. This was approximately 1,500 feet from the Ocean Club, He said the man was approximately 5'7", short brown hair, wearing cream or beige trousers. They said he did not look like a tourist. And according to the Smiths, he seemed really uncomfortable carrying a child. But yet in their minds, they were like, this is just, this is the thing we don't, we're going to let it go. They didn't approach him. They didn't say anything, but they were like, that seems off to me. They put it in their, uh, they put it out of their minds. They get home. They see the news of Madeline. That's when they come forward with like a, we saw this man. Right. I find it insane that the descriptions are almost the same. So to me, like guys, like to say someone doesn't look like a tourist, having two people saying that separately feels weird to me. Having them both say almost the same height, hair color, trousers, jacket, all of this. So I'm convinced they saw the same person. I think that's safe to say. Especially from where she was to where they were and the two different times it probably took him that time to walk that far. The Portuguese police had very limited resources and limited knowledge on how to deal with cases like this. So, shockingly, mistakes were made. Such as, roadblocks were not put in place until 10 a.m. the next morning. They didn't issue any sort of public appeal looking for Madeline. Madeline's description wasn't given to Border Patrol for several hours. Officers didn't do any house-to-house searches. They didn't question everybody in the apartment block. They never asked for any surveillance pictures of vehicles leaving Praia de Luz on the night of the disappearance. Not everyone at the resort was interviewed at the time. No one secured the crime scene. In fact, the apartment stayed empty for about a month after this happened. After this happened, the McCanns moved to a different apartment And then this apartment stayed empty for about a month. And then it got opened up to other tourists, but then got sealed off August 2007 for forensic tests. So multiple other families stayed in this before forensics were actually uh, done on this place. Police were not the only ones to shit the bed. Interpol took five days before they issued issued a global missing persons alert. Which feels crazy, especially we'll get into it later, but Portugal is very well known for being the country that somebody gets brought in and that's where you bring them if you're going to traffic them because that's the place you go because you can go in multiple directions and you could get them anywhere. So you should probably get her name and her face out there right away, especially because she was put on the news immediately the next day. So why Interpol took so many days to get in on this? I don't know. So the McCanns were already raising media awareness. They contacted their friends and family who had connections to the BBC. 
Madeline's disappearance became worldwide news. On the evening of May 4th, which is just the next day, Kate and Jerry McCann make their first public plea for the safe return of Madeline. Suddenly, Praia Deluge is swarming with press. Now remember, Praia Deluge is a village of like a thousand people. Uh, however, at this time of year, the population has exploded compared to normal. Praia Deluge is in the Algrave region of Portugal. In this region, there are approximately 400,000 people. But at that time of year, with the tourists, it's about 1.5 million. Wow. So it really increases. So with press everywhere, uh, the locals wanted to help in some way. So some joined in the search, but one particular local kind of weaseled his way into the investigation. 33-year-old Robert Murat became the self-appointed liaison between the press and the police. He was living in Praia de Luge. He was originally from the UK, but after a rather messy divorce, he moved to Portugal with his mother, Jenny. When Robert heard about Madeline's disappearance, he offered to help police as he was fluent in both Portuguese and English. And while that may seem helpful, Robert had just came across as like super sketchy and weird to the press. His reason for wanting to help is he had a daughter about Madeline's age and just that's it kind of broke his heart and he wanted to do everything he could. But he also didn't like having his picture taken Reporters started to get really suspicious of him and how much time he was spending with the police. Not to mention, he lived roughly 500 feet from the McCann's apartment. So the press is sketchy of this dude. It's known that sometimes people in an investigation will kind of put themselves in there to find out how much the police know. So press is sketchy and the police also start to get very sketchy of Mr. Murat. The police called him in, asking if he could do some translating for them. As soon as he leaves the house to go to the police station, the police raid his home. Robert is then interrogated for hours without food or water. His garden is dug up. Police remove all of his stuff from his house and search his brother-in-law's house and his cousin's house. Robert was released later and interviewed a second time this time with three of the top of seven group. Fiona, Rachel, and Russell were in part of this interview. All three of them claimed that they saw Robert in the area the night of Madeline's disappearance. And even one of them claimed, specifically, they remembered him because he has something wrong with his eye. That's true. He has a detached retina and he's blind in one eye. But until they pointed it out in the documentary, I didn't even notice. And how could you notice at night? And like, he wears glasses, so it's hard to see. So unless you're like face to face with him, I don't think you could tell, especially in the dark. Yeah, that's weird. Jane Turner, who was the one who claims she saw the man carrying the child, is like, meets Robert and goes, oh my God, that's the man I saw carrying the child. Uh, even though she never remembered anything about his face. Well, egg, blank egg. Yeah, but now seeing him, ooh, yeah, 100%. That is for sure oh, him. Oh, boy. So 12 days after Madeline's disappearance, police name Robert Murat as the first Arguido, which is suspect in Portuguese. Careful, I get a little uh, Portuguese. That was, I don't know what just happened I there. I loved it. I, I get, uh, 
I get a little excited about the words that I know how to pronounce, but there's a lot I know I don't. So if I mess some up, no need to tell me. Well, you're the number one <laughs> Arguido of my heart. How about that? Oh, God. Well, now I wish we had, I wish we'd had this before Valentine's Day because I would have sent you that. <laughs> I would have sent you that as a card or something along the lines of that uh, egg sketch. (laughs) So during the search of Robert's home, police find that Robert had been in contact with a Russian man named Sergei Malenka. The police picked Sergei up, but since they didn't have a warrant to search his house yet, they just drove him around for hours, not talking to him, not letting him go, nothing. Until they got a search warrant, and then they took him to the police station to interview him. Uh, so that also while officers were going into his home. Sergey was a 22-year-old who had built a website for Robert, who was a property consultant. That's their only connection, but police didn't care. They saw a connection, and they were like, we got our scumbag. <laughs> I said it with less passion, because I don't feel like they would have had the passion for finding scumbags no. like I do. So police confiscated several computers and 27 CD-ROMs from Sergey's house and found some of the CDs to contain pornography. As far as I know, it was like legit adult stuff. There was nothing extra weird about it, just like the usual thing, to which Sergey says, first of all, everybody has porn. I'd like to see a computer that doesn't. And second of all, he does things with computers for a living, so half of the stuff they took belonged to clients. Right. So it was not all his, and they couldn't verify if it was his or belonging to a client. Right. Again, yeah, I, as, as far as I know, just like basic porn. But either way, this dude got completely harassed. The press called Sergei a human trafficker, a pedophile, and then claimed he was a member of the Russian mafia. The public turned on him right away, and at one point someone burned his car and on the sidewalk spray-painted Fala, which is Portuguese for speak. Jesus. So people immediately were like, oh, this is the guy, you know something, tell us. And it's like, this guy doesn't know anything. However... Both Robert and Sergey claimed they knew nothing about Madeline's disappearance, but when phone records were checked at one point, Robert made a call to Sergey at 11.39 p.m. the night that Madeline disappeared. Neither of those men remember that call ever being made. Don't remember. Yeah, I find it weird. And so, yeah, the time-wise, I get that that's... Something that is, I understand why they were seen as suspects. Yeah. The police could not find any connection to the men in Madeline. Madeline, so sorry, Madeline. Both were cleared as suspects. So while working Madeline's case, we have lead investigator. Now this one I'm going to butcher and I don't mean to. Gonchalo Amaral, who was the head of the PJ at the time. Amaral comes in and admits They just assumed that Madeline had wandered off on her own. Uh, So he put in, quote, this is his word, the most minimal inspection in terms of detail. July 31st, 2007, forensic dog handler Martin Grime brings in two Springer Spaniels into apartment 5A. The dogs pick up certain scents of things that are no longer there. Eddie can smell human cadavers and Keela can smell human blood. Eddie barks to indicate he found a cadaver scent in the bedroom and at the window behind the couch. 
Keela points to indicate that she smells blood behind the couch. The dogs are released a second time around 10 vehicles. There were uh, there were cars that belonged to Robert Murat, Sergei Malenka. Both dogs reacted to the McCann's rental car, specifically near the driver door and in the trunk. This is a car that the McCann's rented 25 days after Madeline went missing. I, I, get, I mean, at this point, I guess police are like, okay, so something happened. They hid her body in the car, but they wouldn't have had the car yet. So they would have put her body somewhere and then used the car later on to transport her somewhere, I guess. This is this uh, is I, if Kate and Jerry had something to do with Madeline's death or or yes. covering up Madeline's death. Yeah. And I I just I mean, we will get into this, but I I went through a real a real swing back and forth during a lot of this on do I think they have something to do with it or not? Maybe I'll save where I've landed. For the end. I don't know if you're going to like where I landed. We'll see. So the police took boxes of the McCann's clothes, cuddle cat, pair of gloves, suitcases, notepad diaries, one of which Kate had started uh, since the disappearance, and a Bible that she had borrowed from a friend. The items were taken to another location where Eddie the dog alerted his handler to one of the boxes of clothes. He reacted to some clothing, specifically a shirt and blouse of Kate's and a kid's shirt. A source close to the McCann's lawyer told reporters that if there was a smell of corpses on Kate's clothes, it could have been because of her contact with corpses as a family doctor. Oh, please. Stop. She's a, she's a primary yeah. care doctor. That's what we they call them in America. Like, it's, like a, yeah. yeah, like a family doctor, like... What corpses is she handling? Come on. But also, like, does Jerry have a 100% surgery rate? Like, wouldn't his clothes pick up on? Well, he, I guess, wouldn't be wearing. But that's the other thing. It's like, and she's wearing her regular clothes to work. But how is she handling dead bodies? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's, 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 yeah, there's a lot of this that I, I, good Lord. So hair and fiber samples were taken from everywhere the dogs reacted to and sent to Britain's Science Service on August 8th, which is the moment the police decided to let go of the abduction theory and focus on the parents. In these situations, it's recommended that the dogs come in just a few days after the crime. At this point, it had been multiple months and people had already stayed in this room who knows what happened? Who knows if the dogs would have noticed those scents even before the McCanns had ever been there? We don't know. So September 4th, 2007, the Portuguese police received the initial report from the UK forensic unit. The report, obviously, because it was made in the UK, was in English. So they had to bring in a translator to translate the report. They were told to wait for the final results, but the police leaked to the press that there was an 80% match between a sample found in the rental car to Madeline. Police cannot legally talk about anything involving an investigation, but Goncalo Amaral contacted a reporter, took her out for dinner, and outright told her he knew without a doubt that Kate and Jerry McCann had killed their own daughter. He believed her death was an accident, uh, but the couple disposed of her body and were covering it up with this media circus charade. So this is now the official turning point 
where the public's attitude towards the McCanns completely shifts. At first, people were very sympathetic towards them, but now they're starting to think the McCanns were involved. People start to get a little outraged thinking of how much time has been wasted if they've just been lying to everybody all along. So the police waste no time in publicly announcing that Kate and Jerry McCann were given Arguido's status just four months after Madeline's disappearance. Police also note the inconsistencies in the McCann's initial statements. In his first statement to police, Jerry told the police he entered the apartment using a key because the door was locked. In his second statement, he said, oh, the door was unlocked. So... Which door did you really go in, Jerry? Yeah. The group of friends also couldn't agree on whether the window shutter was opened or closed. They claimed it was open when Kate discovered Madeline missing, but then it got lowered before the police arrived because all the crime photos, the curtain is pulled down. Also, the shutter in question is like a metal slatted thing that if you're going to move it up and down, I assume it would make a decent amount of noise. Yeah. So I just feel like nobody's going to do that quietly. But, you know. Uh, Also, the only fingerprints found on the window was a palm print belonging to Kate McCann. Jane Turner or Jane Tanner's witness statement uh, seemed to get more and more detailed every time she spoke with police. So the police started looking into phone calls and emails amongst the friend group. Uh, At this point, police now are fully believing the scene was staged. Statistically speaking, when a child is harmed in some way, the perp is usually a close friend or family member, just somebody in the child's world is what it tends to be. Yeah, it isn't always. But so, I mean, you get why they would. These things just aren't adding up, and a lot of times it tends to be someone who knows the kids, so it just feels like, okay, something is really not right with the McCanns. So, uh, police also found it strange that despite the commotion of several people in and out of the apartment during the initial search, the twin McCanns slept through the entire thing. Then police start wondering if Kate and Jerry had drugged the children and then maybe an accident occurred with Madeline. They were worried that people would then find out the children had been drugged and uh, so they just hid her body. Uh, Kate worried that the abductor had given the twins a sedative because she too had noted the kids slept through this. Uh, She gave hair samples of theirs to a lab. No traces of any medications were found However, the samples were taken September 24th, so you would think a mild sedative wouldn't still be traceable at that point. Apparently, depending on the amount of the drug, how how much you use and how often, it can be detected up to like 90 days. This was over 90 days later, so to me it's like, what, what was the point of doing this test because it wasn't going to show you anything anyway? And you know who would know that information? A doctor. A doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong there. So Goncalo Amaral found it particularly suspicious that when Kate discovered Madeline missing, she ran all the way back to the restaurant instead of just calling or simply opening the patio door and screaming. Uh, After being listed as official suspects, the McCanns chose to return home to the U.K., It was the first time they had been home since they left on holiday back in April. 
assuming that they had nothing to do with Madeline's disappearance, I can't even imagine that flight home where you're going on a trip somewhere and then, like, I I guess I get why they chose to leave home at the time that they did, but I just feel like I, as a mother, yeah. would be like, I'm going nowhere. I'm not leaving without my child. Like, we're not, I'm not going anywhere. I will say this, kudos to Jerry and Kate for still being a couple as of 2021. Yeah. Because you would think something like this would tear you apart or bring you closer. But somehow it's just, I guess, brought them closer. The fact that they're still seemingly a couple, good for them on that, I guess. Yeah. So 12 days after Madeline went missing, the McCann set up Madeline's Fund. And in the first three months, over 80 million people visited the site. In the first year, the fund received 1.8 million pounds. So I guess we know how they could afford to stay in Portugal for like four months after she had uh, gone missing. And again, I understand the situation they're in. Actually, I can't say that. I would never be able to understand that being as someone who's never gone through it. Thank God. But... I just hope they realize how privileged they are that they were able to afford to stay in the country and that it wasn't like somebody, they can afford for one of them to stay and she'll have to like sleep on couches or stay with a friend or something like that while the husband and the other two children left. It's like the four of them lived there for like almost five months before they went home. And it's like, and that couldn't have been cheap. So... I hope, I mean, in that case, I feel like you're very privileged, but we'll, we'll get into, I mean, we'll get yeah, into privilege as well. 100%. And also, you know, they had also hired like a PR manager to deal with the press because there was so much of that. Like, they definitely were approaching this in a, coming from a place with a lot of, of means that a lot of people don't have access to, certainly. Yeah, not to mention like the the widespread, like just... The fact that she, like, everybody in the world knew about her. And it's like, while I do believe, like, yeah, put in the effort, find this child. Just, I can't even begin to think about all the kids before that and all of the ones since who have gone missing that nobody's heard about because they didn't have, you know, rich white parents who had connections to media who could get their child's face out there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, there's just... Absolutely. And in that respect, they're very privileged. And I don't know if they've even realized that. I get that they're going through some stuff I will never understand. But it would just be nice if they could acknowledge. Yeah. That that they have it better than so many parents who've been in their shoes. Absolutely. Uh, so the McCanns come home. There is a sea of reporters at the airport. So, of course, their arrival is filmed and broadcast around the world. Irishmen... Martin Smith, who was on vacation with his family and had seen a man carrying a child around the time of Madeline's disappearance, saw the broadcast and immediately contacted police. Martin said that watching Jerry McCann carrying one of his twins looked exactly like the mannerisms and movement of the man he had seen with his family that night in Portugal. I would drag this out further and be like, oh, could it have been Jerry? But I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tease you like that. I'll find other shit to tease you about. Uh, based on the time that man saw this other man, it couldn't have been Jerry because Jerry was 
seen by so many people at the restaurant finding out in that moment that Madeline was gone and then being there with the resort staff and the police. And so he wouldn't have time to be, you know, like 20 minutes away and get there and back, especially because at that time they didn't have a rental car yet. They don't get it for, you know, a month. So it couldn't have been Jerry, despite the guy was, the guy was convinced it was. And then later was like, okay, well, I guess it wasn't there. Unless, you know, some people fudged the timeline because they're all friends. There was so many of them. Perhaps Jerry, who was described as looking, the man was described as looking like a local. Maybe that specific was used to try and, you know, get the heat off of Jerry. Maybe Jerry put her in a different car that we have no knowledge of that was somewhere else that was hidden. How tall is Jerry? Is he 5'7"? You know what? I did not look into Jerry's height, mainly because I'm convinced whoever Martin Smith saw and whoever Jane Tanner saw were the same man. Yeah. And that man has been identified. Oh. Or the police are very convinced. They even made this poor man go through a photo shoot in clothing he would have worn that night and standing in a similar position as the sketch, the better sketch, not the no face sketch, a better sketch that they uh, later released uh, just to show that it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, I think it was him. Um, And this man had like a reason to be in the area. He was picking up his child from the night crash. Oh, where, you know, the McCann's should have been. Right. You know, I almost feel bad that I thought really I was going to make it through this without judging them. But nope, here we go. Um, I just so implied that October, maybe he killed, he was, he, he hit his dead child's body. So you're doing just yeah. fine. Don't you worry. We're in this together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so October, 2007, the final DNA report comes in from the UK. However, the report states that the samples given were too meager and too complex and that nothing definitively linked to Madeline. The samples from the apartment contain DNA, possibly from Madeline, but it's impossible to tell what bodily fluid it was. Uh, The sample from the trunk of the car could have been from any family member. Um, The blood sample was so small and so common that it could have come from literally anyone. It turns out that the person who translated their first report only did like the first small piece of the report, did not do the entire report. Uh, for them. I assume they just didn't ask. So for letting the press believe that the McCanns were implicated and for apparently criticizing the British police, Gonchalo Amaral was removed from the case. Quick aside about one-time Detective Amaral. August 2004, an eight-year-old girl named Joanna Cipriano goes missing about seven miles from Praia de Luge. One week later, the case was closed because Joanna's mother and uncle confessed to murdering her. They claimed that they cut the body into six pieces and hid them in their fridge. Both parents, both uh, adults were found guilty and sentenced to 20 years. However, the mother retracted her confession as it came out that she was brutally beaten while in police custody uh her eyes were like black and so swollen she couldn't even open them Gonchalo, who was lead investigator at the time said she quote fell down the stairs he believed that they put the child's body in the fridge 
which is a claim he has repeatedly made about the McCanns. The thing is, the fridge in this case was so tiny that no body parts are going to fit in it. So it just would have been ridiculous to claim that that's exactly where she would have gone. Plus, they had done tests and there was no blood, DNA, that sort of thing. So when asked if there was a similarity between Joanna's case and Madeline's, Amaral said the only similarity is the gender. However, both cases, yes, are little girls. They both disappeared without a trace. Both cases, he was the lead investigator who believed the mothers had done it and hid their child's body in a fridge. So a few more similarities. To this day, Joanna has never been found. A cellmate of her uncle's said that the uncle confessed that he sold the child to a foreign couple and his cellmate even claims to have seen a photo of Joanna that was taken since her disappearance. Uh, He has refused to come forward simply as he just fears the police. Well, yeah, fair enough. Exactly. I think this is important to bring up because there was quite a few times, especially in the Netflix series, when Mm -hmm. Gonchalo, who I'm going to be honest, I think that some of the theories that he was coming up with about the McCanns to me sounded very plausible. Perhaps there's an accident. They don't want to get their twins taken away. They don't want to go to prison. They need to get rid of the body. Uh, You know, again, shades of Jean Benet potentially. However, he has lost all credibility for so many reasons. That case especially, my God, the fact that that woman got beaten so badly that she admitted to dismembering it, killing and dismembering her own child when she didn't do it. I mean, that, if you need any proof of how brutal the the Portuguese police were at the time, I think that's some of it. I remember there was also that um, Spaniard in the Netflix doc who was saying that he was like, the Portuguese police operate in kind of their own way. And I thought that that was very interesting. And he referenced that it was like, he's like, it's not like the Spanish police. They, they kind of operate like 1970s Spanish police. And I was like, oh my gosh, that I mean, that sounds like, I don't know anything about that time period in Spain, but it, it just sounded to me like this kind of thing where it's like, you know, by any means necessary, get your confession type deal. And then there was also different moments too, where, you know, he would say, John uh, Chalo, Amaral, he would, he would say like, you know, well, Kate McCann was only interviewed for two hours. And then it was like, no, there was proof that it was like 11 hours. Like there were so many of those things, those details that he was clearly lying about. I was like, man, you just, you lost all your credibility with me, you know? Yeah. Well, he's about to lose it again because on the day of Madeline's disappearance, uh, Gonchalo Amaral was made an arguido in the investigation into the disappearance of Joanna. What? In May 2009, he was convicted of perjury, given an 18-month suspended sentence, and four of his officers were charged with assault. So, October 2007, Gonchalo gets removed from the Madeline case. The investigation gets stalled from lack of any new leads. Uh, Then May 2008, the Portuguese prosecutors start considering several charges against the McCanns, such as child abandonment, abduction, homicide, concealment of a corpse. At this point, the McCanns are still listed as Arguidos. July 21st, 2008, the Portuguese Attorney General announced that there's no evidence to connect the McCanns or the first Arguido, Robert Murat, to Madeline's disappearance, so the Arguido statuses are lifted, 
case is closed. After immense public pressure, 17 case files containing 11,233 pages were released to the media. It included 2,500 pages full of sightings. Uh, no element of proof whatsoever was found, which allows us to form any lucid, sensible, serious, and honest conclusions about the circumstances. Uh, I found a site that had quite a lot of it. I honestly didn't count. I will post a link to it somewhere. Fair warning. I mean, it is in Portuguese. I could take the time to translate all of it, but I don't think we're going to read it all. Yeah. So I'll post the most relevant stuff and then we'll just go from there. In 2009, another 2,000 pages were released, including excerpts from Kate McCann's private diary. In June 2008, Goncalo Amaral resigned from the police force altogether and on Ju July 24th, just three days after Madeline's case was closed, he released a book called Maddie, The Truth of the Lie. In the book, he claims that Madeline died in an accident and the parents covered it up with a fake abduction. It sold 180,000 copies in the first four months, was later translated into six languages, and there was a documentary based on the book released in April 2009... But even Goncholo admits the documentary was kind of exaggerated. <laughs> Wild. Wild. Mm -hmm. So irresponsible mm -hmm. on so many levels. Yep. If, and the, the most yep. basic one being, as a human, what are you doing? Yeah, you piece of I trash. Have... Making money off of the death of a child, like trying to put out this story to make money, and then mm -hmm. literally admitting to sensationalizing his version of the story for this documentary. I mean, that is. I think for me, the part that kills me the most is the fact that it's called Maddie, like a sweet nickname for a child that I don't even have the heart to call her Maddie I because I feel like I don't deserve it <laughs> because I don't know. We her. didn't know her. But I will say I uh, if I did know her, I would have refused to leave her in an apartment in a foreign country by herself. Although I guess she wasn't by herself. Technically, she would have been in charge of two two-year-olds. So, oh my God. Nope. Well, oh, I'm listen, angry about I it. also thought it was interesting that the McCanns went to court, took him to court over that book, trying to get all of the copies destroyed. They yeah. won in the sense that they said, okay, well, there'll be no more copies produced. But we're not going to, like, go around burning all the, the existing copies. Yeah. But then that got overturned in appeals court. So I guess this book could still be in print at this point. Yeah, I debated about looking for it and possibly reading it. But I was just like, nah. No. <laughs> no. Again, he's no. lost all his credibility for a million different reasons. And mm -hmm. I, yeah, what a terrible, terrible added addition to this already truly horrific case. Listen, yeah. I think it's time for us to take a break. Go get a new drink, hit the can, and we're going to come back and talk more about Madeline McCann on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash and Christy Oxborough. And we are here to talk about care of vitamins. So I'm a major nerd who loves taking online quizzes. 
Oh, same. And Care-of's online quiz is in-depth. You answer all kinds of questions to help address your specific wellness goals. And I was skeptical that it was going to take forever, but the quiz literally only took five minutes. I timed it. (laughs) I know you may think she's kidding, but I can assure you she did actually time it. I have to do proper research for the people. And they love you for it. Now look, I'm excited to get my first order. Your vitamins arrive in these daily, individually wrapped packets that are totally compostable, which I love because it's convenient and also eco-friendly. I'm excited to try collagen for the first time. Oh my gosh, did you get collagen too? I did. Because of... Broken Broken nails. nails. I know, we really are the same person. We really are. So to try it out for yourself, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code CRIME50. That'll get you 50% off your first order. That's right. Just go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code CRIME50 and you're going to get 50% off your first Care Of order. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research. It's a treasure trove of deep dives and it's all there for your enjoyment. Also on the website, you can find our full unedited Zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen. And make sure to give us a follow on Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives, and the most important piece of information, if you like the show, please, wherever you listen to it, give us a nice rating. Go on to Apple, leave us a nice review. I know it sounds like a silly cliche, but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world, and your support means the world to us. But enough about all that. Get yourself another drink, sit back, and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. We are, of course, talking about Madeline McCann, one of the most confounding and also heartbreaking cases in modern history, obviously. We left off talking about the Portuguese police. What are we getting into now? Well, I'm going to say it. This is, I guess, kind of a tease to our uh, Patreon. We record, we tend to record after an episode, we'll do a last call episode that we release uh, once a week on Patreon. And on the episode we're recording tonight, we are uh, sharing playlists of 90s music that we made this week. That's right. Based on something we had said last week. That's right. In the Biggie episode. But don't worry. I will, we'll post our playlists for the general public if they're interested. But I'm going to say it about those playlists. Save my life this week. (laughs) It was a real, like, it's just always, it's it's dark going through anything that involves a crime. But especially when it's a child, you need that, you need that moment where you have to take yourself out. Yeah. Before you're just a shell of a human. And so I would go to a point where I'm just like, I, I, I can't, I need a second. And suddenly it's just like salt and pepper. And it's like, oh, here she goes. Are we going classic Mariah Carey? We are. And like, before you know it, my mood was lifted. It really helped me. So that the the 90s jam homework that you gave me last week was a real lifesaver. I'm so glad. And I think 
Uh, last time I suggested maybe every time we do a, uh, where there's a victim that's a singer, maybe every time we make a playlist. I'm going to amend that now to say that maybe every time we have to deal with a particularly difficult case, that is our break. We need, we need, uh, my oldest son had a teacher who used to call them brain breaks. I like that. If the kid needed just to get up and walk out of the room, they just go, I need a brain break. And they just walk out. And they come back 10 minutes later and they're good to go. Uh, so I, it was our brain break. I and love I, that. Uh, I'm all for it. Through. Yeah, it got I'm me through. I'm all for it. Well, listen, if you want to know more about our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. we got lots of fun bonuses on there, fun guest episodes and bonus episodes. So lots of fun to be had. All right. Well, it sounds to me like what you were alluding to is that there's something real difficult that you're about to talk about. Uh, we're, we're everything from here on out is not pleasant. Not Got that it. We, not that we've covered anything pleasant. I mean, I think it was pleasant when we talked about your mom. That was nice. <laughs> that was, that was nice. nice. That was nice. Yeah. And now, now, now we're, now we're into it. So, um, September 2007, a Scottish millionaire named Brian Kennedy became a main benefactor for the McCanns. Uh, one of the first things he did was hire a proper sketch artist to create an image of the man that Jane Tanner had seen. Um, you know, something better than the oval. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it was better to the point of I did not try to recreate it myself. I will, of course, post all of these on Instagram and Facebook and in our virtual case file at truecrimeandcocktails.com. Brian paid £50,000 a month for six months to hire the Spanish agency, uh, oh, forgive me, Matodo 3, uh, which put 35 investigators on the case throughout Europe. One such investigator was a private investigator named Julian Parabanes, Parabanes. Numerous tips and sightings came in spanning 42 countries and five continents. I will say this Julian guy, God, I would trust him to join the show. I don't know if he'd I don't know if he'd bring a lot of of energy and heat, but he'd bring the goods and I would be in awe of him every day because he really went for it. At one point, Julian started uh, or at one point, Julian and Brian's son, Patrick, went to the Atlas Mountains based on a tip of some photo that a woman she was on vacation and there happened to be an older woman in a background with a child on her back that happened to look like a little blonde three four-year-old girl and they were like could that be madeline well these two guys go to the atlas mountains with nothing but a photo and they have to like just wander around and try and find this woman they end up actually finding her she does have a little girl who was blonde it's clear that was who was in the photo and it was not madeline right but julian starts to think that maybe madeline had been taken uh and that he needed to start to look elsewhere for her his really disturbing quote was quote they usually don't take middle-class white kids. She must have been worth a lot of money. Which I don't care for. But, I mean, I'm not saying anything about him. He's just... Stating a he, fact. He's a private investigator. He, this is what he kind of what he does for a living. Yeah. So I know nobody wants to think about this, but I would not be doing my job if I didn't at least mention the possibility. Could Madeline have been trafficked in some way? Now, Portugal has a reputation for being used to traffic kids through the country to get them to other parts of the world. 
Worldwide, human trafficking is a $150 billion a year enterprise. Again, it is horrifying to think about, but it's a possibility. So Julian uh, tries to get himself into pedophile groups on the dark web. Afterwards, he says that, quote, I have been to the darkest places of a human being. And I mean, the fact that this man looked so broken that I just couldn't help but feel for him. Now, this is something I don't like to say, but I'm going to say because I'm all about learning. And it is it is a shocking thing that I think people need to know. Two percent of dark web sites are specific sites for pedophiles. But those sites account for 80% of dark web traffic. So like, if you let those numbers sink in, it is pretty horrifying. Yeah. He's doing this investigation. He's put himself in undercover. He's determined to try and see if he can find if somebody anywhere has any information um, on Madeline. So at this time, the man who is his boss, the head of uh, Matoto, starts to make claims to the McCann saying they know who the kidnapper is. They know how he took Madeline. But it becomes very clear that they didn't have any lead whatsoever, let alone know who it was. So they get fired, which means that Julian is no longer on the case. But... Julian turned in all of his work that he uh, had accumulated in dark web chat rooms over to the police. It resulted in 13 people being arrested and 10 being officially charged. So again, he's welcome on our program. Yeah. And yes, he did seem like a very broken man in that documentary, but it was good that all of what he experienced to try and find Madeline at least did not go to waste that it was able to to bring some justice for the obvious thousands of other children that have been uh, victims of trafficking and whatnot. Uh, Kudos to him for doing that. Oh, because that's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. After that, uh, Brian Kennedy and Madeline's fund hired Oakley International, a Washington, D.C. based detective agency. Oakley received over 300,000 pounds to create Operation Omega. The McCanns were assured that Omega included former FBI, MI6, and CIA officers. And since they had the latest tools, techniques, and technology available to them, Omega would be able to do more things than the previous investigators. So Omega sets up hotlines. They send a five-man team to Portugal to engage in undercover operations within the Ocean Club Resort and different uh, pedophile rings. They look into sightings by Jane Tanner and the Smith family. They even sent in a man and a woman with a child to use as bait, which I didn't care for. Yeah. Omega even claimed to have satellite photos of Portugal from the night that Madeline went missing. But then it turns out that the head of Oakley International, a man named Kevin Halligan, was actually just making a report to look like they were doing something, when in reality they weren't. Uh, those impressive satellite photos were actually just images from Google Maps. Uh, it turns out that Kevin Halligan was an Irishman who had been masquerading as an investigator. He faked his FBI credentials faked an English accent, and told people he was a former British spy. At least I don't, 
I don't claim to be a real investigator. I just play one on a podcast. Thank you very much. And I don't put on an accent. You're welcome. (laughs) Yet. It's not in my wheelhouse. So Halligan was arrested in 2009 and pleaded guilty to one count of fraud, stealing $2.1 million from a Dutch company that hired him to help get two company executives released after they got abducted on the Ivory Coast. He ended up dying from a mysterious fall in 2018. Police aren't sure about the circumstances, but he also seemed like they just kind of like let it go. They were like, oh, he fell. And I'm like, okay, understood. understood. Yeah, I had heard it was a brain aneurysm, but then they were like, he was found covered in his own blood. I was like, is that going to happen from a brain aneurysm? Answer, we're not asking questions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're just, it turns out if it's, you can't tell me that a cop didn't go in there and go, investigate it yourself. And yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Oh, that would have been my line. It was really good. I would thank really you. Good. I would have been horrified by the blood. Let's be honest. I mean, this is a man who pretended to be an investigator to help uh, parents trying to find their missing three-year-old. So I don't mm-hmm. know that there is a lot of people that would have a lot of goodwill for him. I also yeah. just want to point out that, it, you know, it's so tragic to me that at this point, the people that, if we're assuming the McCanns are innocent for now, the people that they have turned to you know, the Portuguese police specific Amaral used the story to sell books and make money for himself. And then this jackass is pretending to be a, uh, you know, investigator to make money again yeah. off of desperate people trying to get answers, trying to find their missing child. It's disgusting. And it is in some ways to me, mm-hmm. it's just it's it's an extension to me of this trafficking problem. You are trying to profit off of the exploitation of missing children and I think that that is disgusting I just have to say that yeah also the heartbreaking thing of I mean obviously that private investigator Julian was looking into things but like the rest of the people in that company and people he worked for didn't seem like they were really doing anything so between them and this Oakley there was an 18 month span where no investigators were actually looking for her Obviously, this Julian was trying, but in his own way and didn't come across anything that connected to her. But still, I just I just want to hug that man. I just feel I know he's just he went he went above and beyond for a job. And I just feel like hasn't which is also sad because he was he was he was stuck in this whole thing, too. He was, I'm sure. Yeah, um, it didn't seem like he knew that these other people were scammers. But again, who knows? I also wish that uh, they realized what he had done and kept him on. I Just know. Just continue him and have paying him to do what uh, he's doing. May 12th, 2011, which was Madeline's eighth birthday, a popular tabloid published an open letter written by Kate and Jerry McCann to the British Prime Minister David Cameron begging for Madeline's case to be reopened. Within 24 hours, David Cameron announced that Scotland Yard had opened Operation Grange, a team of 29 detectives and eight civilians, including Andy Redwood, who specializes in cold cases. So the team translated tens of thousands of documents. They released an age-progressed image um, of Madeline. They investigated over 8,000 potential sightings. In 2011, Kate McCann released a book called Madeline, 
uh, in which she suggested that the Tanner and Smith sightings were crucial to this case. In 2013, Operation Grange identified the man seen by Jane Tanner the night of Madeline's disappearance. The man had been returning to his apartment after picking up his daughter from the Ocean Club night crash. You know, that late night babysitting service that the McCanns should have used? Yeah. Again, I know that I'm coming across maybe a little specifically harsh towards them about this, but again, when it's when it's something that's preventable, it's hard to not scream this was preventable. Oh, wait till we get to our theories section. I mean, believe me, <laughs> you're you're going to come off looking like an angel, don't worry. <laughs> I uh, I do like that. I do like yep. that. Andy Andy Redwood said that they were almost certain that the Tanner sighting uh, was not related to the abduction in any way. So 2013, Operation Grange looks into cell phones that were used in the area of the Ocean Club at the time of Madeline's disappearance. Three men with reputations of being thieves were found to be in the area. It turns out they were Ocean Club employees who preyed upon the guests. These men later admitted to breaking into Ocean Club apartments, but denied any involvement with Madeline. Redwood released EFIT images of the men uh, that they'd been trying to track down, which inspired the Portuguese police to reopen their case on Madeline. One of these men was known as Christian B., but former police chief Goncalo Amaral says Christian was investigated at the time. The trailer he lived in was taken to Germany and tested, but nothing was found. So June 2014, Scotland Yard officers and num- members of the Portuguese PJ searched drains and dug into 60,000 square meters of wasteland in Prairie Deluge with the help of archaeologists and sniffer dogs. By 2015, Operation Grange had taken 1,338 statements, collected over 1,000 exhibits, and investigated 650 sex offenders and 60 other persons of interest. But in October of 2015, the operation was forced to scale back from 30 officers down to four, uh, and their funding was significantly reduced. Gonchalo Amaral, who, of course, still fully believes that the McCanns are responsible for their daughter's death, stated that in the end, they were probably going to make that Christian B guy uh, the scapegoat in this case, even when it was proven that nothing his camper he was living in at the time had no DNA whatsoever that proved Madeline had ever been there. Since the former detective didn't seem to believe that Christian was worth investigating, and he didn't seem to be a good investigator on his own. I decided to look into Christian B. Nice! Born Christian Bruckner in 1976 in Würzburg, Germany. Bruckner was later placed into state care by his mother. He remained there for a year before being placed with a foster family. However, after his foster father suffered serious injuries in a car accident... Bruckner was sent back to a state home at the age of 13. I don't know uh, much about what that state care would have been like. I did watch a documentary that had a criminal behaviorist speaking about uh, Bruckner. And he said, quote, being a psychopath is more common amongst sex offenders than a bad childhood. 
Interesting. So that's something to keep in mind. I'm not saying they aren't sometimes linked, but in this case, he could have had the best childhood, but he could just be a psychopath. So Bruckner's criminal record started in 1992 with burglary charges at the age of 15. In 1994, Bruckner was convicted of the sexual abuse of a child, attempted a sexual abuse of a child, and carrying out sexual acts in front of a child. He was sentenced to two years in prison, but he fled to Portugal with his girlfriend to live in Praia de Luz. Because yes, even after being convicted of multiple abuses against a child, he still had a girlfriend. <laughs> so that's interesting. And gosh, I hope that lady has made some better decisions in her I life. I hope so too. Uh, so 1999, he was extradited to Germany to serve out his sentence since he had skipped town on it. Uh, after his release, Bruckner returned to Portugal, where he lived in his VW camper van before renting a secluded farmhouse less than five miles from the Ocean Club Resort, also renting a rundown shack that was less than two miles away from the resort. The and and those were never, I'm assuming those were never tested at the time? Uh, no, Gonchalo did not believe, I don't think he even knew those existed. Of course. We'll, of course we'll get into that. Yep, 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 yep. At the time of Madeline's disappearance, Bruckner made money waiting tables, drug trafficking, and in the words of his current defense lawyer, quote, he was a serial burglar. It was known that his income came from theft. Yeah, his lawyer is a real piece who is just very like, you have to go into the life of a defense attorney knowing that sometimes your client's going to lie to you. And you just live with it. And it's like, oh boy, I get, and I, there were a lot of heated discussions with my husband of me screaming at a computer and him being like, I mean, justice should be served. Everybody has the right to an attorney. I'm like, yes, but, and he's like, there is no but in this situation. I'm like, there is. <laughs> and, and then, and then it became a very, like, I couldn't be a judge or a lawyer or a juror or many things because I I don't want to say my mind is made up, but, oh, folks, <laughs> my mind is made up. <laughs> 2006, while living in Praia de Luz, Bruckner was caught stealing diesel fuel by the police and sent to jail for eight months. According to the locals, that is an unusually long sentence for a simple robbery. The reason that that sentence was that long? Because he refused to give a physical address. He just kept saying, I just live in my van. That's it. He refused to say that he had two other places uh, that he had was renting at the time. Right. He refused to admit about the farmhouse. He refused to admit about the shack. But why would he not want police knowing about those locations? More on that in a minute. Uh, the day after Madeline's disappearance, Bruckner registered his Jaguar under someone else's name and then days later just suddenly moved back to Germany, which I find interesting. Yeah. In Germany, he ran a kiosk that had a small apartment above it. In 2013, Bruckner was found posting in a, pedof in a pedophile chat room on Skype where he openly discussed his fantasies of torturing children. When asked how he'd get away with it, he simply said, it'd be easy, you just destroy all the evidence. 
When the cell phone evidence from 2013 was re-examined, it was found that Bruckner's cell phone was in the area of the Ocean Club Resort and received a call one hour before Madeline disappeared. Police looked into Bruckner's background, and after taking note of his previous crimes against children, they did a search of his apartment in 2014, the one above the kiosk that he was operating, Police discovered 391 photos and 68 video files containing child pornography. Based on the photos, he was charged with possession of child pornography and the sexual abuse of a five-year-old who was his ex-girlfriend's daughter that he was babysitting at the time. He was sentenced to 13 months in prison. But wouldn't you know, before he could serve his time... He fled to Portugal again in April of 2016. 13 months feels low. Yep. It sure does. <laughs> when he has a, when he's has a, also when he has a, a record, a record mm-hmm. of abusing children. Yes. Yes. Continue. Yep. So 2016, as part of a broader investigation into child pornography, German police searched an abandoned factory that was owned by Bruckner. Buried under the corpse of Bruckner's dead dog, Charlie. The dog was died of old age. Don't worry. I looked into it. Thank you. Under the dog, there was a bag containing six USB sticks and two memory cards. These contained around 8,000 videos and images of sexual acts with animals and various abuses against children and teenagers. In at least 100 of those images, Bruckner is fully seen. So 2017, the McCanns give an interview on the 10th anniversary of Madeline's disappearance. The interview was played at a bar. I'm sure it was just happened to be on. It made it sound like it was only played at a bar. That's not what I meant. Right. Uh, Where Bruckner and an associate were drinking. According to this associate, Bruckner got drunk and said he knows what happened to that girl. The associate turned around, told the police, hey, this is what happened. He says he knows something. There you go. Bruckner was arrested in Portugal in June 2017 and extradited to Germany to serve his previous 13-month sentence for the sexual abuse of a child. Bruckner was released in August 2018. He fled to Italy only to be arrested nine days later on drug trafficking offenses from 2007. In 2018, a witness came forward that said they found a videotape in Bruckner's house that showed the rape of a 72-year-old woman. Oh, my God. The assault took place at a house near the Ocean Club back in 2005. So around the time he was being arrested for taking the fuel and he refused to give his address, well, people who helped him siphon this diesel fuel, uh, they were not caught. So they decided, you know what? He's in jail. He's not going to mind if we go to his place and take the rest of that fuel. It kind of belongs to us. So they broke into his house. While there, found a camera. One of them was like, I'm going to take it. They ended up looking at the video on the camera. It shows a very, very brutal rape of a woman from like the room that they were standing in. And then the guy at the end who was wearing a mask during this whole thing takes his mask off and they realize, holy shit, it's this Christian guy that we know. Wow. But these guys realize if we admit we found these videotapes, 
they're going to know, they're going to have proof that we broke into his house. So they want to cover their own ass. So they've gotten rid of the tapes. Nobody knows where they are. We don't necessarily know that they were destroyed. It seems like somebody put them in a van and then they ended up getting, like the van was later sold without realizing they were in there. So if someone has ever come across them, no one has ever said, we don't know where they are. Most likely, I'm guessing they were probably destroyed to save their own ass. These guys did go to the police and explained. However, it's really just based on this guy's testimony. And as someone who was, you know, known to steal gasoline, among other things, I'm sure, he uh, probably wasn't the most credible. So they needed like actual evidence. Right. So the German police reach out to the Portuguese authorities for any samples they could have that could be tested from this rape case of the 72-year-old woman. There was DNA found from a hair that was found in the bed at the scene that matched Christian Bruckner. Bruckner claims, oh, it wasn't him, but rather probably just like a cat took his hair and ran it into the house and left it on the bed. Yeah, he's a horrible person and incredibly stupid. Mm. Great news, though. Nobody believed that hunk of shit. That is and, good news. And uh, while Bruckner was serving time for drug trafficking offenses in December 2019, that piece of shit was sentenced to seven years in prison for the 2005 assault. Now, some would be saying, but if this scumbag is a child molester, why would he also assault and rape this older woman because she was 72 years old at the time so it's a considerable difference from you know abusing a child and well to that i say dear listeners according to a criminal behaviorist they said quote it's really important to understand that many child molesters are not pedophiles for them it's not about the young age itself it's about weakness vulnerability and it's about feeling some sense of power so you attack an easy victim. So, I'd also just like to uh, remind everyone of Richard Ramirez, who also uh, assaulted, uh, raped uh, children and did kill one child and also did rape and kill a lot of older ladies as well. So I think that's what I honestly find the most terrifying about Richard Ramirez is there's no type. There's, there's no, no type. there's no like... This is specifically, these are the people that are going to be the most terrified, which is already sad in itself, but it's specifically yeah. like nobody's safe. Which nobody's is, safe. Which is the... Uh, but again, that again, so that to me, like this is, this is lining up in the same way. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. So June 3rd, 2020, German prosecutor Hans Christian Walters gave a press conference officially naming 43-year-old Christian Bruckner as a suspect in the Madeleine McCann case. In the same conference, Walters also declared that they have, quote, strong evidence that Bruckner killed Madeleine. Walters said uh, he couldn't elaborate, as it's illegal in Germany to share information from the investigation. Also in Germany, he had to be labeled as just Christian B., because they legally can't say the name of suspects, but we all know who he is. Right. Or we all do now. Walters said they do not have any forensic evidence, and when asked how he could be so certain, 
Walters said, quote, we have other evidence. Oh, no. He now. Okay, you know what? I was going to jump ahead, but no, Christy, fuck it. You do this and trust your gut, lady. Just go trust your gut. Yeah. July 2020, German police searched a garden plot in Hanover, Germany, once owned by Bruckner. Investigators have not said whether or not they've found any evidence on the property. And then based on tips from the German police after that, Portuguese authorities started checking wells in the Praia de Luz area. You know what the police didn't check, though? Bruckner's second allotment that he owned in Germany. In September 2013, Bruckner leased a second allotment in Germany. According to the owner, the previous tenant before Bruckner had begun to dig a basement. But since basements are not permitted in that area, Bruckner was told he'd have to fill it in. So the guy who owns the land watched Bruckner bring in his camper and various materials. And well, yeah, when he moved out, the basement was filled in. But that has never once been looked at at all. Jesus. That was the moment in the documentary where I don't even know if my husband could hear what was going on, but I paused it. I paused it a lot to have moments of screaming. I paused it and then I looked at my husband and went, well, I guess I'm going to Germany. (laughs) As though I could handle that or I... Also, I guess we're renting a backhoe when we get there. Um, I want one of those machines that, you know, you can run over... That it can like do the ground like it did in the missing witness episode. Oh yeah, yeah, where yeah. It keeps going, and you can see like if there's something underground or not, or if if I need to go in and learn how to use a jackhammer, I'll do it. If I need to go in and just go like old school, a uh, gold miner with a pickaxe or something, I'll do it. I'll do yeah. it to to look because you can't tell me. That was not ideal for him to be like, oh, you want me to fill in this basement? I'll fill it in. Well, and the fact that he had his camper van in Portugal and then he had the camper van in Germany. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't flying. So he could have had anything in that van. 100%. Jesus. Yep. Oh, my God. So November 2020, Bruckner was eligible for parole for the drug trafficking. (sighs) Thankfully, he was denied. And so was his appeal on the assault case. Good. His lawyer is still currently trying to get that uh, appealed uh, with the thought of, it doesn't seem fair to charge him with something when he's already in prison. Not how it works. I know. Not how it works. So right now, as this moment in time, uh, Bruckner is in prison in Kiel, Germany. He is in complete isolation because when once you get in prison and you they know you're a child abuser, they... They quoted it as saying, like, ooh, you get bullied. I'm like, I don't know if bullied is the right term. But yeah. uh, they end up putting, tend to put these animals in isolation for their own safe, safety, which I get. And yes, I did just call child abusers animals, and I stand by it. Yeah. So Bruckner being named a suspect in the Madeline case led to various police organizations reopening eight other cold cases that they believe Bruckner may have been involved with, including four child disappearances, one rape, two murders, and the disappearance of a 24-year-old nurse. There was also a teenager. These spread across, like there's some in Portugal, some in Germany. I think there's a Netherlands one. I think there's also maybe a Belgian one. But 
there was a teenager who was last seen hanging out with a young German man in the 90s, and then her body was found on a beach. And so it's like, eh, well, wouldn't put it past him. So there's no doubt that Christian Bruckner is a bad guy, or as the criminal behaviorist put it, a psychopath. But are we sure that he's linked to Madeleine McCann? Prosecutor Walters said, quote, We're sure that Christian B. murdered Madeleine McCann because of the evidence that we have. Once again, he cannot say specifically what right. the evidence is, but when asked, like, okay, so what kind of evidence could we be talking about? He said it could be something, he, it could be witnesses or videos or photos. And that was the most that he would say. Despite whatever evidence they have, as of February 2021, Christian Bruckner has not been officially charged in the case of Madeline. He is a suspect, but he is not officially charged. Uh, Walters said that in Germany, they only charge someone if they are sure they will get sentenced in court. If there are any doubts, they will not charge a suspect. Which makes sense, because you want to make sure, if you do it, it's good to go. Because if you, if you go in there and it's weak, and they can possibly get away with it, and your whole case is blown, and then you can't charge them again, if you've got one shot... Would you capture it? Nope. I was. No <laughs> <laughs> oh, if it's, you didn't go there, I was going to. Um, it always somehow comes back mm -hmm. to Eminem for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say this, dear people, because it gives me joy in a moment after uh, everything that just came out of my, my mouth. I did order a uh, Eminem Funko Pup for myself from the 8 Mile movie, and I can't wait for it to arrive. And I can't wait for it to go somewhere back there. I like and that. And I can't wait. Uh, also, in that same order, I pre-ordered a Tupac Funko Pop, but that's neither here nor there. I like it. Okay, now I have a lot of questions. First of all sure. being, are they going to dig up this German property? Like, this is like a no-brainer to me. Same. Not that I'm aware of. I have Jesus. not found anywhere that says that that is on their to-do list, but I would like to think so because... Not to be, for lack of better words, duh. You know, <laughs> like, obviously, it's been, it's been proven at least once that they dug up a yard and found a bunch of incriminating stuff. They dug up another one and won't say what they've found, if anything. But yet, somehow, digging stuff up, we don't know what it is, but that led other police agencies to start searching places so it makes you wonder what they found i assume potentially more like videos because i assume if it was a body of some sort or remains they would have come forward with that um i assume that's why they're going to continue looking in the hopes of finding a body well um, if i can put my profiler hat on for a minute please do as you know i like to really get into the psychology of it even though i have absolutely no formal training or knowledge it seems to me that he had an opportunity to destroy those thumb drives what have you, that were found under the dog, mm -hmm. under the dog's body. He had that opportunity. Yes. The videotape of him uh, raping the older woman. Yes. He not only felt the need to videotape that, he not only felt the need to hang on to it and not destroy it, Yeah. but he also felt the need to show his face. 
Similarly, in, in when you were talking about the deluge of horrific images found, they said in over a hundred, he was in them and you could tell that it was him. Yeah. I don't know a lot about that world, but I, it seems to me that that is probably rare because it's extremely, obviously, incriminating to show your photo, your face in those kinds of photos and videos. Yeah. The fact that he felt the need to bury them but couldn't bring himself to destroy them mm. says so much to me yeah. about who he is, what his mindset is, that he is a psychopath, that he's a narcissist, that he needs to have, like he couldn't, he couldn't destroy his trophies. He had to keep, even if he could never mm-hmm. look at them again, he had to know that they were still in existence. He had That's, to know that he could get to them at some point if he ever wanted to. If he to. wanted to. Mm-hmm. And that says to me that if they keep saying that they know that he had something to do with Madeline McCann, that says to me it's got to be a photo or a video. Don't you think? I, I've i been kind of a little bit sick about it because I can't imagine... a. This like this prosecutor saying the things that he is saying, I can't imagine that he is saying those without like it. I feel like they, they're going to go off of more than just a witness told them something like unless they have concrete proof. But if all they found was a photo of her. Then it's like, well, they can't specifically he could be like, yeah. Someone used my camera or I got this camera off of somebody else. And even if he's in a photograph with her, that doesn't prove that he killed her. That proves that yeah. he was with her but that or, or could have assaulted her, but that doesn't prove that he killed her. Yeah. So to me, all signs point to that's got to be what the evidence is. If they had forensics, they could make the arrest. That I think, I truly believe that's what they're waiting for. I think the hope is that Somewhere along the lines, there's going to be a body so that they can have some sort of proof to officially link him to make it like a slam dunk case. Well, here's something I'd like to say. Please. Old showy Ash over here had been writing up her theory (laughs) about how the parents are involved and... and (laughs) And Kate McCann and the and the case against her. She never took a polygraph test. Uh, to me, why don't you take one? If you're innocent, there's no reason not to. Her book about Madeline, she said weird things in there. She yes. talked about, about Madeline's perfect genitals being torn apart, which to me, I'm not a mother, but I don't feel like that is a way that typically no. parents speak about their children. And certainly, if this was a situation where she had been thinking those kinds of dark thoughts, I think it would be very difficult to say those words. I feel like most people's instincts would be to say, the thought of a predator with my child makes me sick. I don't think that it's, I'll say the word, I know you're not supposed to in the therapeutic community, but I'm going to say it, I don't think it's normal to make that kind of comment about your child's genitals. I don't think that's normal. It's, it's, it's unsettling. It's unsettling. Yes. Um, Also, the brown stain on Madeline that she found, it wasn't there the night before, it's there the next morning, and she's like, eh, it's probably tea. What? And Madeline was, I was crying so much last night, she's got this mysterious stain. Why are you disregarding that? Um, You know, even Madeline, I believe it was either Madeline's parents or Jerry's parents saying, well, yeah, sure, they gave them that Colpo stuff. 
whatever the name of that drug was to let oh, the, to yeah, make the, the kids the, sleep. The Calpol. But that's yeah. it. That's all they would do. This was all the basis of me saying, I think she was involved, and I think this is a giant cover-up, which I know feels insane, but sometimes maybe that makes it the most plausible. But this is why this is why Christy's on this podcast, because she finds the real info and the facts and the goods that now you've changed my mind. And clearly, it has to be this Christian B character, and now I'm already concocting the story in my head. He was working at the at the resort at the time. He got a phone call an hour before she went missing. Someone else knows something. Someone at that resort was watching and gave him the go-ahead. Right? I mean, he was known for breaking into apartments. Multiple people have said, like, yeah, he would scale a wall to get up to, like, a window. Even if, like, the back patio door was unlocked, the window of the kids' room was ground level, and he was an athletic man, so he could have easily got himself into it. Um, I do notice that they have put bars on that window at the resort since then, which I find like a good call. Police and prosecutors did say that they are hoping that whoever called him that night can come forward because they want that person to say yes. I called him, he answered the phone so they can be like, perfect, he had his phone so he can't turn around and get lawyers that are like, oh, just because it was his phone doesn't mean it was him. They want him specifically in that area. The fact that he had multiple houses, the fact that he willingly went to jail for nine months to just avoid police finding his house and looking through it and finding things, he, I mean, police at various points released photos for like a try to help in these cases and one of the photos they released was of this guy's living room the farmhouse um, that he has that was very secluded and in the middle of the farm in the middle of this living room it was just like a basic living room ton of furniture packed in there uh fireplace and in the middle there's like a massive wooden beam that goes down through the middle of the room and apparently on some of the videos and things that they have found of his, there are videos and pictures of him chaining children and women up to the post. And so I believe they posted that photo and were like, is this familiar to anybody? Because they want someone to be like, I have seen a video of that living room so that they can link more to him, is what I think it is. I... I still... I, this has been a very difficult week. This has been, it's, it's not pleasant. I mean, usually we, we are the, uh, we, we add a little more, more humor to our weeks. Uh, this week, yeah, is a more serious one, but this is, uh, the people wanted Madeline McCann and this is what the people got. And I, I am so sorry that this is the, the way it is. I mean, is it possible hey. that she is out there somewhere? And she's alive and, you know, living some sort of life we don't know. Sure. Until we have specific forensic evidence, we cannot say with 100% certainty that she's not alive out there somewhere. And I understand that people are probably going to come for me in the moment of like, she was just a child, like try and have some hope. 
You don't have to be such an Eeyore about it. I don't think anyone's going to call Okay, you. first of all, first of all, you don't need to apologize for anything. You brought amazing information here that is literally like up to the second. Because I know from reading uh, Christy's breakdown that she sends me, yeah. this is information that literally has only come out literally within the past like month and a half. Month, month and a half. So first yes. of all, shut your lips, okay? <laughs> no apologies. This is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Amazing work, first of all. Second of all, yes, in the grand scheme of anything being possible, is it possible that she was taken and given to a family and that she's lived a beautiful life in the Portuguese or somewhere in Europe countryside? Yes, of course that's possible. Is it probable? No. I'll be the bad guy here. I'll be the heavy. They can come for me. No. You hear me? If you're going to come for one of us, you leave her alone. (laughs) I can take it. All right, if you want to come for me, you come for me, but you leave Christy out of this. I would throw my body in front of yours. And And, yours. And in the joke, I'd fall on you and like sprain your wrist. You know, like that that would be the joke of it all. No, but you know what I'm saying? And this isn't me trying to be insensitive at all. And, And my hope and wish and prayer would be, of course that she is alive and well. And we know that those stories do exist. We talked about them in the Missing Kids episode uh, that we did of the podcast already. Those stories do exist, 100%. Yes. This one, there is a lot Mm. that makes it seem that that is unfortunately not the case. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Does Does it happen? Are there times where it's been a long time and suddenly a child is found and they're alive? Elizabeth Smart, she was missing for nine months and found. Sean Hornbeck was missing almost five years. J.C. Dugard, uh, she was missing 18 years and they found her alive. Uh, So is that kind of thing possible? Yes. Madeline's been missing now for 14 years. So it is possible. Anything is possible in the grand scheme of things. I just am going for, I guess, more of the realism that... It's not looking good in that respect. I mean, her parents obviously are still hoping that she's out there. I find it beautiful that they they buy her birthday and Christmas presents every year. They try and think of what she might like at that age so that when she gets these gifts, when she gets home, she can still have all these gifts to know that they've always been thinking about her. Uh, there have not been photos released of the twins that I could find since the trip. So I haven't seen what the twins look like since they were two years old. The twins are now like 15 or something. There's math there. I didn't do quickly. They were born 2005. So they're turning 16. There you go. Oof. That's, yeah. Um, So I have not seen pictures of them for, since they were little. At the time, Madeline's sister is almost spitting image of Madeline. So I can't even begin to imagine not just the, like, the horrific not knowing where your child is, but having a daily reminder of watching a child who looks so similar to that child grow up and knowing you're not uh, seeing that child grow up. So, yeah, I mean, look, they, they, they can't all be, they can't all be gumdrops and rainbows, dear True Crew. Sometimes we're gonna, if you, if you want the true crime, sometimes 
You're going to have to have the downtime? No, that didn't work. If you want the bull, sometimes you're going to get the horns. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's not going to be nice. And I mean, I don't know if it's ever nice. But the point is, I mean, obviously there's the hope. Of course. uh, But when you look at it, it's tough to say. I so badly would like to speak to the prosecutor who says that his, like he is saying not just strong evidence at this point, he is saying concrete evidence is his quote. I just want to like call him. I don't have his number. Uh, I just want to call him and be like, hey, just like tell me. I promise I won't tell anybody else. And then I will immediately text Lauren. Yeah, be, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to know within seconds. I'll, it'll probably be a three way call where I'm secretly listening in. Oh, that's more. That's more. Our, that's our, our style. That is that's our M.O. <laughs> But if it's concrete evidence to me that has to be photographic or video proof placing them together, but it doesn't prove the murder that that's to me, it has to be that's concrete that it places them together, but it doesn't prove there's no forensics. There's no body. That's a very, very tough murder case to to prove. And I can see that any I don't know that there's a lot of prosecutors that would want to try that case nor should they in a sense if you want to get into you know the the fairness and of giving people fair trials I'm just rattling this out okay yes real quick real quick yes because you've got me thinking and my whole other theory is gone and now I feel bad that I was slamming Kate McCann so hard but here's Mm -hmm. what I'll say Mm -hmm. odd Odd choices. There was odd choices made at every step of the way, including that book. Yes. Again, like you're not helping. Anyway, here's what I'm thinking. Yes. Christian B has these friends, okay, that they're all 'er ne'er-do-wells. They're they're all whatever, thieves, whatever. He and two other people you were saying, I believe, were working at the resort at the time. Here's what I think. I think, and I'm going to give this other person the benefit of the doubt, do they deserve it? Probably not. But let's go with this for a second. Christian and this other, at least one person, maybe two, who knows, concoct a plan that they know that these rich tourists are out of their rooms for a certain amount of time at dinner every night, but they leave the kids alone. So Christian comes up with this idea that's like, hey, man, why don't you? I'm really good at breaking into these rooms. Okay, so why don't you let me know when they're out of that room? I'll go in on the last day they're here, steal money, whatever they got, jewelry, etc. We'll split it. Okay, like we'll we'll watch them, whatever, you know, get get their kind of pattern down. I'll steal it. We'll split the money, whatever. When his real intention was to take that child. But in the planning of this, does he say? To one of these other staff members, who who knows what they did at the resort or what access they have. You, he, you said that he was a waiter at some point. Yeah. Would he have access to what the children were eating at the daycare? Is it possible that he was like, listen, I want to do this, this theft. I want to I steal from them. But we can't risk the kids waking up. So why don't we put something in their food that day to drug them up? So they'll be they'll sleep through me breaking in again. He's manipulating this other person to make it all seem like this is all just his way of breaking in to steal money. But when he gets in there, he takes that child instead. I the moment they really like the McCann's just right from the start. were like, you know what? That night she could barely keep her eyes open. That to me 
immediately made me go, oh my God, did somebody drug her at the kids club thing? Or who knows, it's possible they, she picked them up at six. They went to bed at seven. It's possible the kids ate. Maybe they got them food from the restaurant. Was Christian working? And brought them, you know? Or he could have been I, friends. He would have had access, right? If he had worked there, even if he wasn't physically working himself that day, he had access if he had worked there. He knew people, right? He knew the lay of the land. He had been a waiter there. I mean, it just feels... I, tr- I truly believe... He went into that apartment with the intention of, I'm going to steal from these people. And I think he got in while he was looking around. He went into a room and went, holy shit, just right there. I could just take this kid and walk. And I don't know if that if that bedroom door was open, if or if that bedroom window and the shutter was open even a little bit, her bed was right across from that window. So if you look in that window, you're going to see that child. So is it possible? He's like, well, you if you if all he had to do was watch them at 830, sit down and have dinner and then watch the first one leave and then just count. Keep an eye on the time, sitting around watching them, keep an eye out to know how long before he can go. He receives a call, which places him in the area at the time. So we know he's there just waiting Watches them go at 9.30 and then is like, cool, well, I got half an hour. But is it also possible he saw somebody, he saw Jerry go at 9. Jerry came back to the table. He was in the room. If that guy opened the door, he could have been behind the door. For all we know, because the guy didn't look into the room. He didn't even look in to see if Madeline was in there. I can't even imagine that guy. How do you look your friends in the eye? Being like, you you, I said I would go look. You didn't ask me to. I offered to go look, and I didn't. And I just went, yeah, it was fine. Well, in my old theory, I thought he was involved. And that was his way of not admitting that he knew that she wasn't in the bed because she was already dead and they were covering it up. But now I'm on the Christian B train. It's once you know that Christian B exists, it's hard not to to, to get on that I train. have... I have one more layer to this. Now, you're, what I'm hearing from you is you think he worked alone, that he maybe went in there to rob, saw the kid, took her. Uh, I'm not sure if he had anybody else working with him, but I truly believe that he was in that apartment and had a moment of like, I don't know if he knew the kids were in there or if he went in there to steal, saw the kids. He could have gone in there the night before, was looking, checking the place out, being like, I'm going to come in and do a real job in here tomorrow. While he's checking the place out, he sees the kids and they see him. They freak out. They cry. He leaves. And then he just waits and watches to see how long it takes the parents to show up and then realizes the next day, you know what? These kids need to be drugged in some way. Did he try and drug them? Is that what the stain was on her pajamas? Was he trying to put some sort of drug into her just to knock her out? Was it something to like, I don't know, some sort of chloroform is probably clear I don't know what color chloroform is and that means I'm a good person (laughs) no I don't know what that means the point (laughs) is I just think he was in that room with the intention of stealing and then just couldn't help himself because he's a psychopath 
And I think that he went into that room to take her. I think that if he was working there at that time, it was the end of their trip. There is no way that anybody working at that resort, like you said, it was written in the book that they had a standing dinner. It would have easily, within the first few days, the the word would have spread about who these people were. They were at a key prime unit also. It was at the end, right? Mm-hmm. That's an easy unit to kind of take and run. Yeah. I, what if, you know, again, like he had set this up with someone else. I'm going to go in there and rob it. He goes in the night before. The kids wake up screaming, crying, whatever. He bolts. And then the next day goes to his friends like, look, I couldn't get anything because the kids were screaming. So we've got to try and drug them today. They drug them somehow again at the daycare. And then he takes the kid that night. And there's no way that person is going to come forward because that person would realize that they've been implicated in potentially a child murder, which they could have thought originally was just being implicated in petty theft. Again, he was around people who broke into his house and found that videotape of the old woman and they destroyed it, right? Or they they didn't turn that in either. So again, to me, it's just like that's further proof to me that that these people around him, I could absolutely see being having a knowledge or being involved in any sort of plan he was kind of hatching to get in there. Again, I'm not saying that they knew it was about kidnapping that child, but I certainly think that he may not have worked alone to get him to 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 pull off the plan of at least getting into that apartment without the kids freaking out. Can I say something abnormally confident? Yeah. We're really good at this. <laughs> I think we got our scumbag. I, uh, yeah. Again, I just want to know what that prosecutor knows. I know. And then I'll be like, and I won't tell anyone, wink. It's like, it's I don't, gonna... the thing is, I won't, I won't tell. Just, just, I just want to know what it is. I know it will come out eventually. I know there's something. It will. I know, like, whether the McCanns know about it or not, it doesn't seem like they do because they're just like, well, we're still holding out hope, whatever. And it's like, great, you need to, I know you need to do what you need to do. I just want to know what it is. And just because I know that this guy, he he only got seven years for attacking that woman. So he's only got like another five to six years left. Great point. So it's like, if they don't, if something doesn't happen in that time, he's gone again. They need to dig up that property in Germany. Oh That's my the God! Key. Just give me that is the key. The keys to a backhoe. Do that. You need keys for those. <laughs> I think you do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then I confidently say, "Give me the keys to the backhoe." I I just I want in there again. You want me to go in there with like a tiny little like mallet and chisel because it's safer. I'll do it. I'll throw out my back, but I'll do it. I'm an old woman. I just, I just get in that basement. Like the guy who owns the building that people were renting, or I, he owns something in the area who knew that Christian had come and gotten this thing and knew about the basement. Uh, he, he was asked, like, are, have the police come in here? And he's like, nope, probably should. But he just like is like, well, what are you going to, what are you going to do? And yeah, it doesn't make sense. It makes sense for professionals to do it, not just so that evidence doesn't get ruined, but also so that if something is found, it's proven that you found it there and not placed it there 
So it would be nice if they would go in. What's the harm? Like, yeah, I get it. It's currently someone's home. But you know what? Put them up in a swanky hotel for a week. It'll be like a mini vacation. They'll love it. Go in. Get a team. Take all of their items. Place them under a tent outside because you don't know about that German weather. That was a statement to make. I know nothing about German weather. I wasn't going to call it out. It has to be under one of those big forensic tents so their stuff doesn't get hurt in any way. Remove any flooring. Do what you need to do. And then before you know it, pour a new floor. Items are back in. Little bit of a wipe down to make sure everything's nice and clean. They know nothing is different when they get back. 100%. And you know who could pull that off? Brian Kennedy. In, 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 oh, independent millionaire yeah. who's been financing all this, all this, all of these independent investigations. Anyway, where is he in all of this? We need to get Brian Kennedy on the phone and say, "Here's where you need to be channeling your funds. You got a, you got a basement you need to dig up." Yeah, I, uh, I did. Now that you say it, I have noticed. In the beginning, he was like, "Here's the money. Whatever I can do to help. I feel so bad for you." And now it's just like. But guys, I've spent a lot. You know, it's just, it feels, who knows? He could still be putting money into it, but whatever's going on, like, they're obviously not paying for any of the prosecutor or any of the police. Right. So I don't know what investigations he is potentially paying into, but that, to me, is their next thing. I mean, I also, if finding 8,000 photos... And different videos, like, that's going to take a chunk of time to look through. I also feel for the people who have to look through it, especially those who are trying to even just find, like, in a video, a still that you can get, like, a face that's not going to, like, destroy any parent that sees it. Not that it wouldn't anyway, but, like, a face that you could put out in the world. So I can't, uh, like, if he put... He had stuff in the one apartment. He had stuff buried in another place he lived. It's his thing where he keeps mementos of some sort and he will hide them if he thinks someone is coming to find them. I assume he hid that stuff before he left town because it was like, an I can come back. I know I can get it. So I want to know because it's not, if it was a case of it was a place he lived and they never searched, I'd be like, you probably should. But it's specifically, he moved in and the basement was half dug out and he had to fill it in himself. And he was like, cool, I can do that. It's like, what did he put in there? You know, well, like I hope we find out. I hope we find out at the end of the day. Christy Oxborough, you killed it. I mean, this is unbelievable mm. information. You swayed me. I came in thinking one thing and I have left thinking something completely different. I mean, I've concocted a full new theory just in the past half an hour of this podcast. So I think that you need to give yourself a break. I don't know what's going on over there. We're going to get into it when we go to record our last call episode right now for Patreon, a uh, bonus episode. But I want you to know you did exceptional work. Amazing work. That a plus. Wow. Oh. oh. A plus. Hitting her where it hurts. Um, I, know, I know what to say. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Uh, I mean, as always, just high praise. It's just, you know, folks, you gotta, you gotta take it as it is. We do true crime. We don't recap 
the Andy Griffith show. Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to be concerned. I know that you feel like there, that maybe there weren't as many laughs in this episode as there okay. are sometimes, but this is also the one of the most prolific true crime cases of all yes. time involving the kidnapping and potential murder of a of a three-year-old. I If there were a a barrel of laughs in this episode, I would honestly potentially worry about us. (laughs) Yes. I love that my concern is that I I just have the worry that maybe this had gone like a step too far for the uh, true crime fan. But again, like it's it's true crime. I don't feel we went too far. We went, these are potential things that this is the evidence that we have found. This is everything that we, that could have happened. We're trying to be realistic at the end of the day to get her we just we want justice to be served for her really at the 100%. end of the day 100% and uh i hope that there is no one out there doing an andy griffith podcast of any kind but if there are good good, good on you good on you for doing the, the the jolly work that is probably a joy to go to work every day and not a ooh get the tums before you do that episode <laughs> Listen, Ooh. you presented yeah. the facts. You you took us, uh, yeah. I mean, again, you just presented us with all of the facts. You know, I, again, I, if anyone has any notes, they can bring them to me. They can bring them to me. They'll have to get through me first. Well, good luck. <laughs> I, I so appreciate you. And I know that we're going to get great feedback about this episode because you truly knocked that out of the park. And this new information is is shocking. It, it really is. And, and I think it's actually... I think we actually timed this really well because if we had done this a few months ago, you wouldn't have had this information. And I think that this is really stuff that needs to get put out there because I think that they could be onto something. I hope that they're onto something, obviously, because the closer we get to getting her justice, if that is unfortunately what the story is, the better. So again, we're doing our best to try and and help, uh, you know, keep keep moving the needle. Listen, we are very excited about next week's episode. It is actually a surprise. We're not going to tell you all of the details about next week's episode because it is something very special. So you're going to need to stay glued to our social channels, Instagram at True Crime and Cocktails, Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, and Twitter at Not Detectives. Again, if you're interested in Patreon, not so sure about it, what is it? Who knows? Go to patreon.com slash Cocktails to learn more about that. And listen, it's going to be, I'm really excited about about next week's episode uh i can't wait for you all to learn about that also the full unedited zoom episodes of our show are always living on our website truecrimeandcocktails.com and we are slowly migrating them to a to a public youtube page because people have been asking and so we're delivering because that's what we do yeah i mean they're technically they're all on youtube yes just like hush hush youtube they're like unlisted but we did uh change it Recently, I think we only have a few episodes, a couple that haven't been made public yet. We are getting closer to being more public sooner after releasing them. And yes, yes, I just want to say we've had multiple people ask about the comments on YouTube. They would like us to open up the comments. They want to get in there. They want to talk about the cases. And if we could guarantee that's all that people wanted to do on YouTube, then I'd say have at it. I we are just not the idea of having to monitor another uh, social media platform. I don't know if I have the time for that. Not to mention a lot of a lot of people go on YouTube just to just to say mean things that 
I don't need to hear my oh, self-esteem. I've received, I've received death threats on YouTube. So for anyone else yeah. who wants to know why we're not really excited to open up the comments, yeah, it's for me, it's tied to direct trauma. <laughs> yeah, I'm just concerned that the internet will eat me alive. Uh, and I'm not built for that. I could barely discuss a potential child murder without being like, oof. Okay, yeah, maybe I really do need those tums. But I will say, like, if you want to talk about our cases, I mean, hey, we uh, on Instagram and Facebook, people come on, they talk about things back and forth. We have a uh, love, dear, lovely uh, Jess Evans runs yes. a True Crime and Cocktails fan page. That's right. Uh, you can find her on Instagram and uh she puts up a case file uh, every week when a new episode comes out, and that's where people are coming and having discussions. So you want to have a discussion? Welcome to the True Crew. Get on over and uh, have the discussion in a safe space. <laughs> we have we have always endeavored from the beginning of starting this is is what we wanted to do was create a, a community of of people who are like-minded, who feel safe within our, again, I know it sounds, you know, like a cliche, but it's true. And I think we have had such an amazing experience, especially on social media with all of you. And we love interacting with all of you. We genuinely do. And again, if we could guarantee that we knew, and this isn't about like not having thick skin and being able to like take some criticism. Again, I have been given death threats on YouTube because of my body. <laughs> and I know what people like to say, which is just ignore them. But what I would say to that is try it, try experiencing it, and then just see if you would be really excited to potentially do that again. Because to me, we're having a grand time. We're having a grand time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we hear you and we're not trying to disappoint anyone, but we are also providing lots of opportunities for forums and discussion and all of the, th all of the above. And, and we appreciate all of you and your enthusiasm, but please do be patient with us because, you know, we're just hesitant about the whole that is um, the YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's more than fair. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, people. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week for a very special episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Hi, I'm Michelle Veray. And I'm Kimberly Trung, and we are the host of Crush Fictionally, a podcast all about your favorite fictional characters from movies, TV shows, and more. Each episode, we pick a theme, curate a list of characters that we love, why we love them, and some fun facts about the people who created them. So if you've ever felt a true connection with a fictional character, tune in to Crush Fictionally on Campfire Media or wherever you find your podcast. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed 
guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.